Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Time to talk about the DC Comics for September 20th, 2022. Big week, a lot of DC books out there. Uh, we are going to do a separate uh, episode for the Harley Quinn 30th anniversary 100-page special, uh, just in the interest of trying to keep this under four hours. <laughs> we always tend to ramble on a little <laughs> too God. long. Uh, so, yeah, I thought, it was a, I thought it was a really solid week. Some great books. Nightwing was great. DC's War of the Gods had maybe my favorite Guy Gardner uh, characterization ever. World's Finest was great. Flash was great. Yeah, really good uh, Really good week. What did you think, Rock? Uh, yeah, I thought it was uh, – uh, well, I honestly, I, I think there was a lot of comics this week. Uh, I think that um, – I think if I was to add them all up, I would say that I'm slightly, I enjoy probably slightly under, under half of them. Like the the, mediocrity, uh, defined most of it, but there was like about four or five that I, I thought were, I'm, I'm glad I read. The other ones were, were okay and kind of meh, but that's to be expected. Like, you know, again, there's a lot of comics and, you know, I'm not, I shouldn't be expected to, uh, like all of them, but, uh, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll, we'll have some fun. We'll have some fun. Yeah, I mean, not every comic can be a, a home run, that's for sure. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so let's kick it off with the aforementioned World's Finest, written by Mark Wade. Dan Mora is the artist. Tamara Bonvillan does the color. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, so, yeah, some really interesting ideas here from Mark Wade. Uh, this is issue seven, I should mention. And there's a new character. He's right there on the front cover. Haven't necessarily been given a, a name i mean it does say meet the boy of thunder on the on the cover but that's not i mean it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek um you know we do meet him in the issue we learn his name we see that he comes from another uh reality and what's interesting is that in in that and there's all these mirrors right these these um kind of analogs or themes or similarities between this boy and and Superman, because this boy, his name is David Sakella. His parents are both scientists. Like I said, an, another reality or another Earth in the DC multiverse. His parents are both scientists, much like Superman. Uh, he comes from Gotham as opposed to uh, Krypton. Um, but he is he does get launched in a rocket, this rocket traveling through the multiverse as opposed to traveling through space but leaves at the moment that Gotham explodes, right? So there's all these parallels and similarities between this boy and Superman. And when, when he does arrive in Gotham, he, you know, he realizes he's in an alternate universe, wants to go see his parents, goes and introduces, which you kind of, I mean, kid seems pretty smart. Like when you be looking for your own self, but it turns out the David Sakella of uh, this universe died when he was three years old. You sort of wonder why if his parents wouldn't have recognized him. So it's a little wonky there. Um, and, and the other thing that kind of gets me about these world's finest, I'm never quite sure, you know, wh- what exactly is the timeline for this? Because, you know, we saw in the first story arc of world's finest that it was you know, supposedly in the past, right? Because wasn't it Dick Grayson, Robin, that Supergirl took back in time? But then at yeah. the end of it, we saw uh, the Damien version of Robin accessing the uh, tomb of Nezha on Lazarus Island. So I guess that was a, a time jump. That's how it's all working out. Because again, this one, it's Tim, it's a, it's Dick Grayson Robin and everything seems a little more, I, I don't want to say innocent, but 
the, clearly this is happening in the, in the past. So how does that reconcile with what's going on in the rest of DCU? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe I should th- throw that out and stop worrying about that and just enjoy the story for what it is because it is really enjoyable. Um, and what the sense that I got and what I was thinking of and what I was reminded of when I was reading this is how much Mark Wade loves Superman. It's his favorite character. What a great job he does telling Superman stories, even though this is the world's finest and the characterization for Batman is great as well. Here's the thing. It's like, even though this is world's finest and it's a Batman and a, and a Superman story, Robin is there as well. It does. They don't feel like the driving forces of the story, right? This doesn't necessarily feel character driven, but it's not, not to say that it's plot driven either. Um, like really, I would say the main character of this, this particular issue of this arc is David Sakella himself, this new character that's introduced. He's sort of the driving force. And so it's so interesting because Clearly, you can see Wade's love of Superman and how he's drawing parallels to Superman and this uh, this young boy, uh, Boy Thunder or whatever, uh, Thunder Boy. Um, but it, it really just makes me want to see Mark Wade just, just give him the Superman book already. You know, not that I don't enjoy seeing, you know, the Doom Patrol in the hands of Mark Wade or, you know, Batman and Superman interaction between Mark Wade, but he has such great ideas. Um, and especially if at the end of Dark Crisis we're going to get some sort of reset or or clean start or uh, clean slate or fresh start or however you want to put it, a dawn like, of the DC uh, universe. <laughs> yeah, give it to just give it to Mark Wade. Let him. You know what I mean? Like I know that you have mentioned Secret Identity. We've talked about that before. How much you love that Wade did that and how it was sort of a reset. But then like within, I think less than a year, they, they got rid of it or a little over a year. It was, it was definitely less than two years. Um, You you mean birthright? Birthright. Yeah. Superman's birthright. Yeah. Yeah. Birthright. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I want a Mark Wade. (laughs) I want a Mark, like what Bendis did with man of steel, what John Byrne did with man of steel. I know it hasn't been that long since Bendis jumped on Superman, but, I wouldn't mind a third Man of Steel by Mark Wade to kind of do another reset um, in whatever way he wants to do it. And I'm kind of curious, like, if if they did do that and they got rid of John Kent completely, like, um, you know, turn back time or what have you, Lois is not married. You know, I know there was a big black backlash when they did it to um, Peter and MJ over in Marvel. Um, I just wonder. I just wonder what would happen if, if like, God, was it – is it worse to have John Kent artificially aged up and miss out on his childhood or is it, or is it worse to have him erased completely, but then knowing, well, Mark Wade's probably going to get back to that point at some point if they, like, I think if you let him, Mark Wade would write Superman for the rest of his life. Um, <laughs> but you know, like, give me like, I, I know. And I, I know it doesn't happen anymore and publishers don't want it to happen. I've been told by editors, I've been told by writers. Yeah, they don't want big long runs. 2 years is about as long as they want. Now, I don't really understand that myself cuz man, I really would like a big long run. Give me 5 or 6 years of of Mark Wade on Superman and we could get to the point where um you know, we had Lois and Clark get married. We could even get to the point maybe where John was born. Um but yeah, I I, I just I say all that to say I love what Mark Wade is doing here. Um, but I just, I wonder if we could, if we cut out the clutter and it's funny for me to call Batman clutter, but because it's clear that he, he, he writes Superman so well. Um, and the other thing I'll mention real quick is that the Dan Mora art is absolutely fantastic. 
It's so good. Um, the guy's just, he, he doesn't get enough credit for how fantastic he is. From the first page, Doomed Planet, we get a lot of storytelling. Um, you know, that, that's all the dialogue. We get Doomed Planet on the opening page, and then we get a double page spread, Desperate Scientist's Last Hope. And this is all told with no other words, right? We, we see this parallel, again, very similar to the origin of Superman leaving the, uh, leaving planet Krypton. Um, you know, it says it's Gotham City. It's a futuristic looking Gotham City. And that's all we need. Yeah. Everything else is told through visual storytelling by Dan Moore's art. And that's where the parallels come in because I had to go back. Like I got to the double page spread and I, I, I flipped back to the previous page. I'm like, wait a second. That said Gotham City. Doomed planet. Like, th- but this is Superman's origin yeah. in so many ways. It's so. a call back to All Star Superman, Grant Morrison. That's how we started yeah. off All Star Superman. Yeah. yeah. So uh, again, I just, I thought it was fantastic. He does write Superman. He writes all these characters with a little bit of an innocence that I really enjoy. Dick Grayson as well. Um, it's, it's kind of a um, a throwback in a lot of ways to the you know more dark and gritty um, you know DC universe that we've had for so long. Even when we see the Teen Titans show up on the last page, you know, with Aqualad in his old costume and Kid Flash, Wally West in his old costume, it's 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 definitely a throwback to. Um, a little bit of a brighter time in the DCU. And then immediately juxtaposed against that, the, the last page, almost like an epilogue um, with this key master character, whoever that is um, killing somebody about as dark as you can get. So anyway, I thought it was fantastic. what do you think? Uh, this is, this is modern day. This is silver age storytelling in the modern day. That's why it works. Yeah, right, and uh, right. it works so well because uh, you know, he's, he's a master at, uh, He's a master at telling those types of stories with a Silver Age sensibility, but with a modern day twist and it works. And because these characters, it's in the past of the, or of these heroes in the younger years, we get, we get the, the these are in, in fact, brand new stories, but they're rewriting a lot of the, they're, they're interjecting new characters in DC heroes past, which is what they should be doing, quite frankly. And in fact, it, it worked to great effect in the first six issues, which led in to Robin versus Batman and where we get the return of Alfred and we got the demon Nezha and that's changing the mythology of the Lazarus pit and what have you. And we're getting some excitement there. And in this issue, in this, in this issue, we have hyper time. We have a boy who's uh, a young boy, this David Sakella, who is leaving a doomed planet, another planet that's within hyper time because we know at the end of Dark Crisis, we know that we're going to have a multiverse with hyper time. And so now we've had hyper time for quite a long time already. But uh, frankly, this is incorporating the new dawn of the DC universe, frankly, sensibilities, uh, utilizing the new language moving forward, which is we're going to be getting a lot of light, undoubtedly hyper time related stories in conjunction with the multiverse and the and the, the inf- in infinite number of Earths, which are returning. And so this is Mark Way just I think doing the natural thing, telling great stories, simple stories, uh but but with heart. And I mean this this is just riddled with heart. Who uh, Superman can relate to this David Sakella character. He's he comes to this world, he's loses his parents in another parallel universe within hypertime and the parents in this world uh, are are basically they they had a son, they had a son but his own version his his counterpart in our world uh, has has died at the age of three, and so he's trying to find his place. And it's nice to see Robin introduce him to the Teen Titans. And it was nice to see that at the end, 
uh, Superman is going to try to incorporate this David Sakella into his Superman family. So this is a way of retroactively expanding the Superman family that might work quite well. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it because now I'm wondering, because I, I know we know what Mark Way did in the, in the, Oh, in the first six issues of World's Finest, how that led to and formed part of, we know, Robin versus Batman and the Demon Nezha. Are we going to be see, seeing this David Sakella, uh in the in the mainstream, in the modern day DCU moving forward? And uh, and this is actually a very interesting character, organic. Already, I feel like I know this David Sakella, and I'm actually I'm actually looking forward to it. And I, I thought this issue was very well done and a, another uh, check mark in Mark Wade's uh, DC echelon. I mean, uh, amazing the difference. I mean, Mark Wade has what is he's only written a handful of DC comics. You know, he hasn't written a heck of a lot since he came to DC. And he's you know, we didn't have great big signs saying Mark Wade is coming. You know, Wade is coming. You know, we, not like Bendis. And yet he's done infinitely. He's made infinitely more of a significant uh, landing than Bendis ever did. And talk about leaving with a whimper. I mean, that's what Bendis is doing. But uh, yeah, but no, I I enjoyed this. This is uh, this is for me. This is my this is tied for number one favorite of the week. So we're starting off with one of my favorite comics this week. Yeah, it was that idea that uh, Bruce says, "Oh, you know, to, to Clark, you're going to be a father. You know, you're gonna, you're going to have a family." That that's what made me realize. Wait, how does this? Like, he has a family. He has a son. Oh, wait. No, this is in the past, and that, so that's what made me kind of, kind of stand up and take notice of that. So, uh, anyway, let's move on. Next up, we have Catwoman number forty-seven. This is written by Tinny Howard. Caitlin Yarsky is on the art. Jordi Blair on colors. Tom Napolitano and Josh Reed on letters. Um, pretty cool cover from Jeff DeCall. That main cover as well. Uh, what do you think? Uh, first, I want to give a shout out to Jeff DeCall. Uh, I'm loving every single one of the covers. Uh, my personal thing, uh, the opposite of a pet peeve for me when it comes to covers is I love loving cover A's. Uh, I personally feel very, very strongly that we fans deserve to have the best cover being cover A's. And I think day in and day out, Jeff DeCall's Catwoman covers have been the best covers, not the one in 25s, not the variants, not that other nonsense of the cover B's that you got to pay an extra dollar more because they put it on harder cardboard and that nonsense i love uh, i love a the, the best cover should be cover a and actually have some thematic relationship to the content of the comic and we've been getting that in these catwoman covers by jeff to call and uh to great effect so i i quite enjoy that now moving on to the story itself uh we actually have oh, sorry uh we actually have uh, this story uh, so it builds on uh, writer Teeny Howard is building on her some of the storylines she's introduced in previous issues, in particular the uh, 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 Catwoman and Valmont are traveling to uh, Switzerland in this issue to uh, where they're uh, they get involved in sort of a, sort of a mafia related uh, shenanigans with uh, one of the uh, one of the moff. Um, Mafia kingpin of Gotham, Finbar Sullivan. Yeah, this is where uh, Finbar Sullivan, a mobster, he goes to vacation. And Finbar's brother is uh, this uh, Declan who uh, has a wife named Abigail. And they're trying to take over the operation from Finbar. And so there's a lot of uh, uh, inner workings of the the mob going on here that um, that Selena and Valmont have sort of stumbled onto. And this issue, uh, Teeny Howard tries to tease the fact that Selena has sort of a, Selena and Valmont have kind of a, have a, 
it's kind of will they or won't they kind of relationship. It's kind of been hinted at that they've had sexual relations, but I don't know if they have or not. But they, it's there, there's some sexual tension here uh, in their dialogue. And they're, both of them are even sort of having a little bit of a mini contest flirting with the stewardess as they're flying to Switzerland. And so I actually kind of enjoyed the dialogue here, I think. I get the sense that Teeny Howard is having a little bit of fun. Teeny Howard is, clear, is clearly trying to uh, uh, empower the women in this comic. It's Abigail, who is the wife of this Declan character who wants to take over the mafia operations. And uh, she's definitely about empowering the women in this. We see, we see strong themes of Teeny Howard doing that early on with Selena trying. Selena is all about protecting women. And in fact, she even gets very angry at, uh, at one point, she gets angry at Valmont in this issue when she feels that maybe Valmont has sort of betrayed her at one point. And, but it, in any event, I thought that the – I thought this was quite good. Uh, they, they end up uh, coming ac- across this character who's sort of the glorified international financier of, of Finbar named Eskanda. And Eskanda is worried that he's being used as a pawn uh, in this game between uh, uh, Declan and, uh, and Finbar. And uh, – in the midst of all this, we get Dario, who we in the first story arc, he is the uh, he's the he's the uh, gay son of one of the other mafia figures who was in in love with another another character who uh, who it wants to betray him. And I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, there's Dario or Noah and Noah and Dario are sort of like they're, they're, they're lovers and Noah wants to take over the, the, the mafia operations of his father. And Dario's actually the son who's supposed to inherit it. But in any event, so you got Noah has, uh, wants to get revenge on Dario, but they have a relationship with each other. They have a past relationship. So not really sure what's going on with Noah and Dario is Noah seemingly kidnaps Dario and it ends with, uh, Dario phoning, contacting Catwoman and Valmont in Switzerland, asking them for help, but they can't help him uh, because they're in Switzerland and he's in he's in a, a, a Gotham, and so they have to find their way back to try to rescue Dario. But I'm not sure if Dario really needs rescuing. I get the sneaking suspicion that Noah might uh, might have a hard time killing Dario because uh, they 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 did have a previous uh, uh, intimate relationship, and there might be some relationship issues there and maybe Noah's true agenda isn't to kill Dario after all. So Teeny Howard is clearly playing with uh, doing a lot of character work here. It's it's a little choppy in parts, transition from scene to scene, but I think it, it marks a continued improvement in what Teeny Howard's been doing uh, because I enjoyed her first story arc and I think this is getting on track and I, I enjoyed some of the character work here. So what do you think? Yeah, I agree with you about the, the choppiness of it. Um, that's kind of been a trademark of the series since she took over. Um, and I, I kind of give her a, a little bit of a pass on it. Cause I know it's just because she's, she's got such big ideas and she's trying to tell such a big story and scope. there's not always room. Um, and it's not, it doesn't always flow as, as much as it can. But, you know, when I look at the previous run, which maybe my favorite run of Catwoman ever, but from Rom V where, you know, I, I kept com- comparing it to a Michael Mann movie and especially with what Fernando Blanco did with art, but the one thing I will say about it is it as stylistic as it was and as fantastic as it was and um, the way that it evoked that kind of neo-crime feel uh, of something like Heat or Manhunter or Thief or, or whatever, any of those classic Michael Mann crime thrillers, uh, the one thing that I always was left feeling was like I wanted more 
You know, it, it's really hard to translate that feeling into a comic and they did that really well. But you, I mean, it, it really feels like even though Rom V was on the book for over a year, it feels like we basically got one, one short arc, you know, we didn't get that much like Catwoman showed up in, um, in the neighborhood and, and kind of took it over. And then there was this like one fight, this one arc with the, you know, the cop and with Catwoman's sister. And that was it, even though it was like over 12 issues, you know? Um, but again, it was because capturing that feel and, and making sure the story flowed. So Tinny's not, you know, falling into that same trap, but the, on the flip side of that, it's that it does feel choppy at times because the pace is quicker just to try to get the story out. So again, I, I, I sense it. I see it. I understand why it's happening. Um, and it, it, I will also give her credit that it, it, that doesn't mean that we lose character moments because we still have great character moments. In fact, we have a great scene with Catwoman and, and Valmount on the, on the airplane to open the issue. So we still get plenty of great character moments. I like what she's doing. Um, I've liked what she's doing all along, except for those Harley issues that, that, that like the more this goes along and she's building this as this really mob focused crime story with, uh, you know, Catwoman pitted against these different crime families, the more it goes along and the more it's built and you see the foundation and seeds planted and payoff, the, the less that, uh, road trip side trip, whatever you want to call it with Harley makes sense. Like, <laughs> It just, am I wrong? I mean, it just feels so. No, no I agree. It's better when she's telling her own story. That Harley, it really, that Harley story really did feel like a side trip. It was, it was like a collateral story. She's she she just wanted to get it out of her system and do a Harley story, but it felt disjointed. It didn't really feel connected to to this overall yeah, mafia yeah. story. Yeah, the art was so different as well. So yeah, I, I, but I am liking what's going on here. Um, not familiar with this artist. Um, Caitlin Yarsky, but she does a, a, a pretty solid job. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah the good. storytelling is great. Her choices for what shows up in the panel is all great. A uh, little, little stylized, um, little static at times. Um, but overall, I, I thought it was really, really strong. So good, good issue of Catwoman. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Dark Crisis Young Justice number four. From writer Megan Fitzmartin, Laura Braga is the artist, Luis Guerrero and Hi-Fi on the colors, Pat Broso on the letters. We finally find out who's behind this alternate reality that Bart and Tim and Connor have been pulled into. We did see the hat that this character is wearing previously as kind of a hint. Um, I talked to Megan Fitzmartin at San Diego Comic-Con and had some guesses about who it was based on the hat. One of my guesses was never... Mixius Pitalik. I never thought the big bad in this was going to be the son of Mixius Pitalik. Um, I got, and Megan was like, yeah, it's a real hush hush. Um, I'm not going to say whether or not I convinced her to tell me who it was or not. But what I will say is if I did convince her to tell me, uh, I was sworn to secrecy. And if she did tell me, I did not share it with anybody else. Uh, that's not to say that she told me because that may not have happened or it may have. Um, but either way, now that you see the, him wearing the cap and it's purple and it sort of mirrors the bowler hat that Mixius Pitalik, uh wears, it makes total sense. Um, really excited to see a, a son of Mixius Pitalik. Um Mickey is his name. 
because uh, I think it opens up some really cool story ideas. I also like, uh, and this is one of the few times where I would love if you could just add a sound effect into a comic, um, because I love that she chose record scratch as kind of the thing to you know throw you when th- things in this particular issue are a surprise. It's Connor that narrates, <laughs> and he mentions record record scratch a couple times. Um, and man, if that wasn't the perfect noise to you know hear in your head when Mickey Mixia's Pitalik shows up, I don't know what is. So uh, as far as advancing the story, this really does this particular issue really doesn't. This issue is about the relationship between Cassie and Sissy, reiterating how Bart feels, uh, uh, kind of that uh, Tim and Connor treat him as a sidekick, and then the reveal of Mixie. Uh, or Mickey rather, uh, Mixie is Pitalik. Um, but as far as how this is going to be resolved, what this reality really is for, we, we sort of don't get it. There's been different theories that our, our three uh, protagonists who've been trapped have all sort of put out there. Um, but I, I do feel like, and, and Rocky, you can let me know if I'm correct in this or not. I do feel like this series is really kind of paying off or is a richer experience for those that have read Young Justice. I have read none of Young Justice. I don't have any context or any um, history with it. So it's hard for me to say if, if that's actually true because they do reference and, and we saw it when the, the series started off that they were fighting, you know, classic Young Justice villains and making reference to things that happened in the past. And they, they sort of metatextually in this issue are talking about that. Hey, yeah, when we fought Empowered, when we fought so-and-so, you know, um, and even at, at one point they're saying – we. Why are Connor, I think, is saying, why are we fighting against this world? Isn't this what we've wanted? I don't want to go back to the other world where I've died before. You know, why not stay here? What are we fighting against? So um, that's a really interesting perspective to have. Um, and a quick note on the cover. I thought they were both good, but I thought the Serge Acuna cover, I, I enjoyed even more. That second variant cover uh, with uh, with Cassie, who is, is a character I really enjoy, I thought – I really enjoyed that cover. thought it was fantastic. So, uh, yeah, so give us your perspective as somebody who has a little more history than I do with Young Justice. Uh, well, I'll be – I've consistently uh, – since ish, I enjoyed issue one because it felt like the characters – it felt like uh, an old issue with that – I forget the name with the big the big bosom. It was just funny. I mean there were – I the, thought – Wasn't it, it the Mighty Endowed? Yeah, the Mighty Endowed. That's what it was, yeah. And it, I had a lot of fun with that, but – Unfortunately, uh, while I'll give I'll give uh, Megan Fitzpatrick a lot of props for for doing that, that very clearly was played like a joke, and it was all part of where she's how she's right. Let, let, let me back up and say this: for I wish she would have written this like Mark Wade is approaching world's finest. I would rather have had an older story that took place in the past with the characters of the Young Justice, as opposed to this newer story that takes place. In the present, where they're clearly in an off world that's been created by Mickey Mixopatelic or whatever is the son of Mixopatelic or Patelic or whatever, uh, because every everything that could be funny isn't really funny because they're always given this meta commentary about oh something doesn't feel right, something doesn't feel well. That's because you're older. That's because this isn't actually really Young Justice. The characters here are the characters here aren't young anymore. And so it doesn't feel like Young Justice to me. It did in the first issue because I thought they were going to continue to embrace that and have some fun with it. But this is now it's just being played. Well, now it's like this Mickey character, the son of Mixel, 
Mick says Pitalik is he's just playing games with them and 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 that's all well and good. I would have uh, I will give props to Megan Fitzpatrick because she's she's trying to have some fun and also. <laughs> I'm really going to give her I'm giving I'm cutting her a lot of slack because she really was biting off more than I think any writer could could be expected to chew with Young Justice given the ridiculously convoluted history of these characters. I think she's done as good a job as any new writer I I can expect. So so I say that I I say that with a great amount of respect. I just for me this this doesn't feel like Young Justice. I I just wish they would have just told her write a Young Justice story. And why not write a young justice story and then at the end relate it to these characters as, you know, have, have these characters looking back on an old young justice adventure and then tie that past adventure into the future, kind of like what Mark Wade did in the first six issues that, you know, that that would have worked better for me and have and had them look back and laugh at the mighty endowed and all the, the, the nonsense that they got into in the 90s, because this is almost like a commentary on how sexist the 90s were and how how different, how much times have changed. And of course, they have changed. But as a reader, as, as an older reader who likes Young Justice, I kind of want the illusion that times haven't changed. And I know that's very selfish of me. I know probably old fashioned and maybe there's all kinds of changes that I need to make <laughs> as a man in his fifties. But uh, uh, again, I, I think it's a, uh, I think she's tried to check off too many check boxes when she wrote this. And because of that, uh, I got, I give her, I give her a for, for really good efforts. Cause there's moments here that I, that are laugh out loud, funny, particularly in the first issue, but it just feels like the story just is, I, uh, I don't think this is new reader friendly at all, uh, to, to be quite honest, but, but then hearing your comments, uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. So, so I hope I am. I'm just trying to, yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to read it for what it is and without the history of young justice. Yeah. I, I just don't maybe get all the references. I take your point that they're not young anymore, but I mean, that's kind of the point I think that she's making. And you, you know, you referenced it, the fact yeah. that times have changed. Um, but I wonder if, you know, she'd taken that tack, you know, of, of, you know, them going to adventure and then looking back, I guess they could, she could have still introduced mix Mickey. I'm going to keep doing it. Mixie. Mickey, <laughs> yeah. Mixie is Pitalik. I mean, I guess she could have still in, introduced him, but I don't know. I mean, I think that there's still more of the story to be told. Like what, what is his motivation? Why is he doing this? Um, and maybe have it, you know, this was the way to structure it, to have it play out more like a Mixius Pitalik story. Cause they, those like stories starring him do tend to have, you know, a certain structure, a certain formula that, that they follow, which that's not to say you can't go outside that formula. Um, but yeah, jury, jury's still out for me on this. I, I'm enjoying it. Um, I'm kind of a little disappointed that, somebody who's a you know big young justice fan and has the history with it is not enjoying it as somebody that um, <laughs> doesn't have that history with it uh, but like I said you know I, I postulated that somebody that had had the history they would it would be richer for it but it sounds like in your case it makes it actually a worse story less less likely to be enjoyed um, so I don't know or maybe that's just like you said the old man in you that's like well, get off my just- I want the old old young justice back. Well, I will say this. When when they were young kids and they were arguing with each other, the arguments were funny and silly and funny. Whereas now but now they're adults and it's and the dialogue just sounds like they're older adults and it sounds more like petty pettiness to me and, and disgruntled teenagers. And it, it just I, I guess it just never hit the same. And you know, and, and again, I'm in fairness, you know, you're trying to recapture my youth again. I mean that you know, it's probably just as much on me as uh, Megan Fitzpatrick, but and again, I, I do give her props because right. I, I'm a hard person to please. So 
Yeah, Megan Fitzmartin. I, I always make Thank that you. mistake. Yeah, I always make that mistake as well. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. Um, well, one more thing I will say is I, I still don't get the tie into Dark Crisis either. <laughs> yeah. Unless you know, unless we're going to find find that out. Um, so we'll yeah. see. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Deceased: War of the Undead Gods, written by Tom Taylor, pencils by Trevor Hairsign, inks by Andy Lanning, colors by Rain Barreto, letters by Seda Timofonte. Um, so much like Young Justice. I still haven't gone back and re- read the whole deceased. I think there are three or four different um, limited series before this one. Uh, and I, I know I'm missing out on some references and whatnot, but I think Tom Taylor is doing a great job of making this new reader friendly because I am able to follow along and I absolutely love it. There are some brutal scenes here as there have been throughout, <laughs> even though I haven't been reading the deceased stuff. Um I'm aware of the, you know, the, the brutal killings and whatnot. Um, I'm not going to spoil everything, especially the last page. I'll let Rocky talk about that because I don't want to take all everything. Um, but I'm going to mention that seeing Darkseid literally rip off Sinestro's head, I had surprisingly mixed feelings about that. Sinestro's kind of a jerk, always has been. So to see him get his comeuppance was in a way like, oh, Sinestro, you finally got – you know, he's so arrogant. <laughs> Nestor was so arrogant that you just want someone to put him in his place. But I mean, here he's fighting for the side of the angels. And so, you know, for that reason, it's like, uh, maybe, you know, it's not as the payoff's not as great, but the scene is no less amazing or brutal. Uh, and Trevor Hairstein does a fantastic job. Um, seeing Superwoman, Supergirl as a bad guy is, I always have mixed feelings about that too. Uh, but it definitely works. You know, she's definitely formidable. And then my favorite thing in the issue is Tom Taylor writing Guy Gardner when he confronts Brainiac, like, oh, Brainiac says something about meeting a ninth level intelligence. And he's like, oh, who who came up with the levels? He's like, and Brainiac says, well, I did. And, and uh, <laughs> Guy Gardner's like, well, isn't that convenient? How high does your scale go up to? Nine. And then Brainiac talks about, well, theoretically 13. And Gardner's just like, and you're only a nine? Like, what are you talking about? I'm an 11 on the Guy Gardner scale, and it only goes up to six. That's how good I am. Like, it's just the best Guy Gardner dialogue. And, and that that little interaction sums up exactly who Guy Gardner is. He's such a bro, you know, uh, yeah. such a, like, frat boy. Like, and that just sums it up perfectly. And I read that, and I was literally laughing out loud. And all I could think was, man, I really want a Tom Taylor written Guy Carter series. Uh, I don't know, or maybe a one shot, because that would be hard to maintain that throughout an entire series. But, oh my God, it was so, and I won't, I won't spoil everything because he, he, the, the follow-up panel is just as funny. Um, him calling Brainiac an idiot, but God, I just, I absolutely loved it. So again, I've said this before, it's just a matter of finding time. Reading this and seeing the amazingly visceral Trevor Hairsign art reminds me every time I read it, that I haven't gone back and read the previous deceased stuff and that I need to. Uh, yeah, and just to keep do. up with the theme on, yeah, I, I really do. Just to keep up with the theme on covers, every one of these covers is fantastic. Um, there is a, an homage to the, the X-Men covers for X-Men issue one that were um, a gatefold, you know, that you could buy each. And of course we all did. We bought all five of the covers so we could have them all, but then you bought the green one that was the gatefold to have them all together. So there's an homage, an homage to that. There's one that has this uh, evil-looking Lobo on it. And there's another one with – I guess it's Wonder Girl 
Um, yeah, well, the new Wonder Woman, I guess. Well, she's Wonder, Wonder Woman. Woman. Okay. That's right. That's okay. Right. Is it is it Cassie though? It is. Because okay. it's Cassie yeah. Sandsmark, yeah. yeah. In the in the yeah. in the Undead Universe series or whatever, yeah. Right. It, is- and yeah, I mean she just looks gorgeous. Yeah. Uh you know, it's clearly a, like digitally painted airbrush or, or what have you. Um and yeah, it is just gorgeous. Uh Sun Kamonaki is the artist on that one. Um, and that, that, that might be my favorite one. So, uh, yeah, I, I just really, really love this. Um, it, it was just so much fun. So what do you think? Well, uh, I, I, my comment is for all those people that are upset with a particular writer with the first name of Tom being Tom King, the way that Tom King writes Guy Gardner in a particular series that uh, you and I really love, but they don't like how Guy Gardner is portrayed in one series written by Tom King. Don't worry, Tom Taylor's coming along. And if you're a Guy Gardner fan, you're going to love the way Guy Gardner is portrayed here in Deceased War of the Undead Gods. He's a cocky, arrogant, take-no-prisoners type of uh, soldier uh, soldier warrior that you would expect Guy Gardner to be. And I agree with you, the scene where he's having that dialogue with Brainiac. I mean, of, of all the people that you would think would lose a battle of wits with Brainiac, you would think Guy Gardner would be up there. But no, Guy Gardner makes Brainiac truly look like an idiot. And, and like you said, it just puts a shit-eating smile on your face. And so definitely props for that. But there's so much more in this issue. There's a uh, big Barda being cured of the anti-life virus and her and uh, Mr. Miracle traveling to... Uh, traveling to uh, New Genesis, looking for their son, Jacob. Of course, New Genesis has been infected by the anti-life virus, by the uh, possessed dark side. And Supergirl's been possessed by the anti-life. They attack the planet of Karagar. The Sinestro Corps gets involved. Of course, that's Karagar is Sinestro's home planet. Uh, And uh, Seratu, his his daughter, who is a Green Lantern, along with Kyle Rayner, they go and they try to help protect the planet of Kuragar. Of course, that doesn't work out very well. The fate of Sinestro here, I won't ruin it, but let's just say it's uh, it's pretty epic. Sinestro is a kick-ass warrior, but so is uh, Darkseid, possessed by the anti-life. And when I read this, I, I imagine Tom Taylor playing with his DC action figures because when you when you sit back and you say out loud the plot of what happens in this issue, it's like I want to grab up, I want to grab my action figures and say to myself, now imagine if you did this and this did this and this character did that, and and that's what he's doing. And to Tom Taylor's credit, it's like a it's like an insane injustice series, and injustice is arguably one of the was pro- arguably the best comic book of the of the decade of 2010s and he's having so much fun here and he knows these characters he knows the dc universe we've said this before tom taylor knows what he's doing here and this really really works i am also i'm not going to ruin uh, i'm not going to ruin it for the people either if you're not reading deceased war of the undead gods uh you're crazy and uh you know jace it's actually your example is a perfect example how much you enjoyed this and you like say so you don't even need to read the first series but you want to read the first series after you've read this because it because you think oh my god how did they get to this point where they're essentially on a new earth and now the entire universe is in danger from this undead virus that is still around and they can't seem to escape but this is this is a lot of fun and Trevor Harrison's art how many people when Trevor Harrison debuted with with uh, deceased 
didn't like his art. They didn't like it. It was too choppy. The line work was choppy. It was un, it was uh, under it was unrefined. And and now all of a sudden, you can see an improvement in his line work and his art, and it's gotten better and better. But it fits the horror the horror narrative slash uh, hint of hope that is up ever present in every in every story arc. But this really works. Yeah. So I uh, yeah. This is. Definitely. Again, again, this is tied tied for first with World's Finest for for best of the, for best of the week. This is a lot of fun with this one. I that's interesting about your comment about Hairsign's art because I don't think it's improved. I don't think it's changed. Um, so I'm I, I've been a fan of Trevor for a long time. He did a lot of work for Valiant um, mm-hmm. before DMG bought them, um, and and did a fantastic job. Exo Man of War. Also, um, Book of the Dead. I remember reading. I think he did some Book of the Dead. Dead. Uh, He did did the other one about the Russian astronaut Eternity um, that was fantastic as well. And yeah, there's always this grittiness to his style. And it it really works for the, you know, as long as you match him up with the right type of story. Uh, But he's definitely capable of of cleaner line work. And if you look at those pages I was talking about with the interaction between Guy Gardner and Brainiac, the way he draws Brainiac is much cleaner than a lot of the other um, characters, especially women who uh, they're, you know, the, like Barda in the beginning, and she's kind of disheveled and, you know, uh, just can't come out of battle and gone to the, the, the <coughs> planet where Jacob is supposed to be and everything's gone and destroyed and she's all distraught. And, it, you know, that those thin lines of hair and it uses, uses it to show emotion. Here's Brainiac, this living computer, uh, and he draws him much cleaner because he's just a much cleaner character. So, yeah, I... I I just think that that's just the way that his style is. Um, so I do find it interesting. I, I think more than him improving, I think people have just gotten used to it and they realize it really works. His style of art really works for what, um, for the type of story Tom Taylor is trying to tell, the type of story that DC is. So, uh, all right, let's move on. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we have part nine or issue number nine of Batman the Night, written by Chip Zdarsky, art and cover by Carmine de Jean Domenico. Um, colors by Yvonne Placencia, letters by Pat Barroso. We're coming down to the end of this, and I'm I just re- going to reiterate what I've said about the series from the beginning. I expect it to be big in scope, and you know, based on it being only ten issues, but supposedly wanting to cover all of Bruce's training, that it was going to be kind of this high level, almost like a Marvel saga type um, story where everything was real broad with a lot of. Uh, third-person narration. Uh, that hasn't been what this has been at all. It's been a very personal story of Bruce focusing more on the relationship he had with the, his mentors as opposed to what he was actually doing in his training. So much more emotional than I expected, which I guess I should have known because it's Chip Zdarsky. Um, but I thought this was a great issue. Um, the Dijon Domenico art, I kind of feel like we are just talking about with Trevor Harrison. That's how I feel about Dijon Domenico. I've talked about it before. Uh, first time he worked at DC was on Flash with Joshua Williamson, and I feel like his art style suits Flash very well because it's very kind of loose and flowing. For other characters like Batman, I don't think it works as well, but as this series has gone on, it's sort of grown on me, and uh, it's at least it's consistent. We've had the same artist on throughout, um, and it does evoke some emotion because it is a bit of a, a looser style. Um, makes things a little more visceral, if you will, uh, especially with the color choices. So, what do you think about it? Uh, I think the uh, well, the art, the art, the art remains. Uh, I think 
very consistent throughout this entire series, and 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 it works. Uh, I'm I'm accustomed to it, and uh, I think it works. It it works very well. It feels kinetic. It feels action packed. Uh, the uh, Carmen uh, Carmen D. Giomonaco, his his our facial expressions are quite good as well because that's very important here because Bruce uh, the emotions and the emotional journey and the character arc that Bruce Wayne is on here is 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 the emotional heart of this of this entire Batman the Night series and of course his relationship with his mentors as you said is is something that is definitely played out behind the scenes how he he took both the best he learned from the best masters there are, are but he also learned from their flaws as well and in this particular issue he's beginning he finally meets up with Raza Gaul he, he when he battled uh, Harris Zuma the still last issue the still sort of extended to Bruce Wayne after being defeated by him extended to him an invitation by Raza Gaul of course Anton and Bruce have to look for Raza Gaul and they spend the first quarter of this issue doing precisely that traveling in the Sahara Desert outside of Dubai looking for uh the 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 I guess the, the, this majestic city of Lazarus. And, and what I find interesting here, what Chip Sardaski is doing is he's sort of, uh, I believe he's adding to the lore and dare I say evolving or perhaps even changing some of the mythology of Raza Gaul a little bit. I don't know if there were, you know, he's giving Raza Gaul a city called Lazarus. He's maybe changing up a little bit of the Raza Gaul's past. And uh, it, it's he's he does a really good job here because I could see how one could be extremely attracted to this powerful person named Razo Gaul uh, with this beautiful daughter Talia who is who who at first is uh, you know I, I I kind of laughed at one point Talia refers to uh, refers to uh, Bruce and uh, excuse me refers to Bruce and Anton as basically backpackers, you know, trying to find themselves, you know, because that's really what they are. They're two wandering guys roaming the earth, trying to find different masters. And, you know, there, there's almost an element of absurdity to what Bruce Wayne and Anton are, are doing. And so Talia sort of mocks them a bit, but it becomes quite clear as they're being trained that, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne sees through Roz a little bit. He's gained enough instincts through his training that he suspects that Roz is not everything that he is purporting himself to be. And I think it, I think it works quite well. Uh, the idea that, 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 that Raza Gaul has a master plan of creating, uh, Lazarus cities, self-sustaining environments, transforming how people live and consume the planet. This is very much embracing the idea of, you know, that's kind of what we want now to embracing climate change. We want our cities to become exactly like Raza Gaul dream they would be in the early years of when Bruce Wayne first met him. So I find that kind of interesting too, that Raza Gaul here, his, his so-called master plan, it does seem to have a noble goal, but yet as Bruce Wayne asks, why is a guy who wants to save the world surround himself with assassins and train them? Something is amiss here. And, um, you know, again, uh, for those of us who know Raza Gaul, we see a lot of very familiar tropes uh, in this story, but it feels it feels refreshing. I won't say it feels totally new, but it feels refreshing. It's got a new sort of flavor to it. I like what Chip Sardaski is bringing to it. And yeah, I'm really curious to see where this is going because with uh, Dawn of the DCU on our real world horizon here, 
I wonder how much of this is going to be, you know, rumor has it that they might start fresh in January, maybe renumber Batman or some revitalize or refresh the DC universe and their characters moving forward. Uh, I think it's fair to say that what Sardaski is bringing here, particularly what he's bringing some vibrancy uh, with Bat- the Batman of Zura Nar, with uh, Failsafe in the pages of Batman, what he's doing here. If, and just like what he's doing in Daredevil, this feels like he's building something. And I really, really like that. And again, I'm drawing another, I'll draw another example to what Mark Wade's doing with World's Finest. You tell a story in the past and you build on it in the present stories. That's what, I think that's what Trip Sardaski's doing here as well. And it's, and it's no, I don't think it's any surprise that World's Finest is critically appraised, critically acclaimed, and Batman Knight is getting some fairly decent press as well. So I enjoyed this. What do you think? Oh, you're on mute. Mute. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think if Zardowski is going to pay off some of the things that are in this series in his Batman run, then, you know, more power to him. Um, like I said, this is an emotional and a very personal story of Bruce, which I enjoy. I love that he brought Ghostmaker in. Um, clearly he, you know, paid attention to what James Tynan was doing. Um, so I appreciate that. It is kind of hard to see how he's going to wrap it up in only one more issue. Uh, but he's paying homage to, you know, even though this is a little bit of a retcon, he is respecting and honoring what came before in terms of, yes, of course, it's Roz, Al Ghul, the last person that trains Bruce. Of course, there's a conflict between him and Anton because we know that Ghostmaker and Bruce had this agreement. That's why we had never saw him before, right? If Bruce was in one place, the agreement was that Ghostmaker would not be there. Uh, and then it's kind of inherent in his name, Ghostmaker, that he's, he's you know, in the shadows. He's behind the scenes. That's how DC has structured it, so it explains why we haven't seen it before. So, again, I think this works on on a lot of levels. Um, I do sort of wonder what it would look like with some more traditional DC, almost house-style art, but um, that's not to say Dijon Domenico hasn't done a good job because he has. Uh, All right, up next, one that I did not read because uh, we've talked about it at length. I've never read any of the Fable stuff, but we're up to issue number 155, which is Chapter 5 of Unboxing Day. Bill Willingham, writer-creator, Mark Buckingham, penciler, Steve Lea-Aloha on inks, Lee Luffridge on colors with Todd Klein doing the letters. What do you think? Well, I'll give a quick summary here uh, because those of us who uh, love fables, I think, are going to be enjoying this. This is part five of 12 of the Black Forest. Uh, In a nutshell, the, uh, the world is now aware that fables exist. And uh, Cinderella has returned from the dead from the original 150 issue run. She was killed by Kinder, uh, Kinder Totten, who was a wicked witch. She's now back from the dead and she's helping. And, and, and this issue, it's established she's going to be coordinating her efforts with the, with the White House to help them uh, build defenses against potential uh, magical fable creatures. In the meantime, we got another story of uh, uh, Snow White and Big B, the Big Bad Wolf. They're, they're seven children, which are all wolves of the great wind. Uh, they're very powerful. Powerful. They've gone. Their daughter, their, their father, Bigby, told them to go on a big adventure, and they took him literally. And so they're literally going on these massive adventures. <laughs> and uh, what's playing out is that they, they uh, these adventures seem to be uh, quite. Uh, 
quite quite funny. Uh, Connor Wolf comes across a prince of last resort and who uh, kills monsters and sort of kills people who don't seem to be doing anything wrong. So he's a mysterious character, this Kit Hellconnor, this prince of last resort. Then there's Blossom Wolf, who sort of like looks a lot like her aunt, the Red Rose, Snow White's sister. Uh, she's uh, stumbled upon – she's in uh, – She's uh, stumbled upon this uh, uh, this Hearn, the son of Hearn, and these creatures that she's accidentally released from being caged. And something is amiss here. Meanwhile, we got Peter Pan, who has defeated the great adversary, who is the big bad guy in the first uh, Fables run. And Peter Pan with uh, with... <laughs> With his little fairy tale, with uh, what do you call it, uh, Peter Pan and Tinkerbell, they got some machinations. They're trying to find all the magic that the adversary, uh, who was Geppetto uh, of Pinocchio lore, he hid some magic and they're looking for that. And all in this Black Forest story arc, we're only in part five of 12. There's a lot of things, uh, we have a lot of questions. If you're following Fables, you'll uh, you'll enjoy it. Uh, I said before, it's not exactly new reader friendly, but there is some, the dialogue's always good by Bill Willingham. And if you're, if you're a Fables fan, uh, you definitely want to check it out with, of course, uh, fantastic art by uh, Mark Buckingham. So yeah, I would, uh, I, I've, I, I'm always enjoy. I'm always good for a good Fable story. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, all right, up next we have Black Adam number four. This was written by Christopher Priest. Rafa Sandoval handles the art. Matt Herms on colors. Willie Schubert on letters. This one's called Theogony. If you're not familiar, it's a poem, classic uh, poem about the genetics and heritage of the gods in a lot of ways. So think about like the gods family tree. Um, and that's sort of what the, the term has come to mean. And we certainly see a lot of those elder gods here. Anu, uh, Asher, Belet, Ninaruda, Marduk, Enki, Nergal. So there's the story that's going on in present day where uh, Black Adam has been resurrected. Um, the, the disease that supposedly was infecting him, it looks like it's been passed on to his descendant, um, who is, you know, a doctor and is, well, he's not a doctor yet. He's interning, I suppose you'd say, at a, at a hospital. Um, but we see when he uses his powers later on in the issue, that it appears that the infection has spread to him. So there's a lot of moving parts here, which is very typical of a Christopher Priest story. Uh, and how things will make sense is not always apparent until you get to the end. Because again, we do have this story that we keep flashing back to about the way Black Adam interacted with, um, with these gods, the Akkad. Uh, and he wasn't, you know, he was still referred to as Tet Adam back then. Uh, and they're the ones apparently who, who christened him Black Adam because they don't like the way that he's used his powers. They don't like the choices that he's making. Uh, they're saying that he's turned evil. Um, so clearly something going on in the past that's going to pay off in the, in the future timeline or the present timeline that could explain maybe where he got the disease. And then as far as his descendant, what exactly is going to happen with that? I, I don't know. It, it almost feels like a, I don't want to say a completely separate story because, you know, clearly it's not um, because he is, you know, a, a descendant um, and he gave uh, black Adam gave him his, his ring, but it's, it's hard to see how exactly they, they tie in together. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what's going on other than there's plenty of action despite this, you know, based on how I 
sort of summed it up, you would think it's more of a talking head sort of story, but there's plenty of action here with the demon showing up at some point, what he wants with this descendant of black Adam, you know, we don't know. Sargon, the sorcerer shows up on the last page. Like there's just a lot of moving parts here and it's hard to know what exactly or what direction um, Christopher Priest is going in. I will say one of the other things that I noticed, the art is is solid from Rafa Sandoval, but we've talked before about how it's not quite the really clean style that he's used on other things in the past, especially Green Lantern. Um, but that's okay. Uh, a little more visceral style, something that's a little sketchier, kind of adds to the mood because this does feel like a dark story. Um, and I think, again, that, that really suits what's going on here. Um, but the other thing that I noticed is typically in a Christopher Priest book, sometimes it's a full page. Sometimes it's a, it's a quarter of a page on a panel. Um, we get very few of those black panels with the white lettering, um, to kind of tell us where we are in the story, what's going on, uh, name the chapters, whatever. It, it's very much a Christopher Priest thing to do. He started doing it when he was writing Black Panther during Marvel Knights. Um, but I think the story, even though it's 12 issues, 12-issue uh, limited series, I think the story is so big, he can't really afford to waste panels, honestly. We do get them as insets, and we do get them as panels once in a while. Uh, but it's just something I noticed because this does feel relatively fast-paced, but it also feels like a big story. Uh, and keep in mind, we're only a third of the way through here. This is only issue four. Um, so we have eight issues to go. I'm very curious to see where it goes. I thought the art was fantastic. The characters are are interesting. The, this characterization of, of Black Adam is, is different. Um, there's not the arrogant self-assuredness that you see so often with Black Adam. You can see he's sort of questioning himself. He's sort of questioning what's going on. Maybe it's the fact that he just kind of faced his own morality, was at death's door. Um, but I really like what Christopher Priest is doing here. And I wonder how much my, – my guess is going to be none, um, but I wonder how much the characterization of Black Adam in the, the upcoming movie played into this. But I, I doubt Christopher Priest got a chance to even see it. You know, Those upper decision-makers at Warner Brothers aren't thinking – they'd probably just send, hey, put a Black Adam comic out around the same time that the movie's going to be out. They don't think, hey, we should give the writer a screening or you know, uh, some kind of a preview – copy of the, the film and they're not thinking of that at all uh, most likely so um, but it is interesting because this feels like a little bit more of a human Black Adam as opposed to even the, the recent one that we've seen in the Justice League even though supposedly he was on the side of angels trying to fight against uh, some reality and future state event that was supposed to come to pass um, which never really made sense but we'll leave that alone with the whole rock of eternity and what have you um, even that felt a little bit like a mustache twirling villain. And that's how black Adam has sort of always come across just because of his arrogance. Uh, what Christopher priest is doing to him here is making him much feel much more human, much more relatable, much more fallible. So I think it works on a lot of levels. what do you think rock? Uh, yeah, I was, uh, well, my one, my one criticism is that this story is not being told. Uh, I, I wish it was more, there was more clarity here. Cause this is, I, I feel this is told in a very confusing manner. And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you said it very obviously, and we all know this. This is how Christopher Priest tells a story. And, um, 
And, and, and I get that. Uh, having said that, that doesn't mean that it's, <laughs> it doesn't mean that it gets any better if you, if you use his same style. He uses the same style again and again. And where, where it doesn't, where I feel it, it's, uh, it doesn't work quite as well in this issue is he really tells some, he's really changing up the origin of Black Adam here in, in a way that I, I think is, kind of interesting and significant. We all know that this is the new 52 origin of Black Adam. He establishes here and reminds people that Black Adam got his powers from both, you know, 5,000 years ago in Egypt, him and another person by the name of Akim, his cousin, jointly acquired the powers of Black Adam. Teth Adam, he killed Akim. He killed his cousin to get the powers for himself. And the wizard banished him out into space. And this tells the story that while Black Adam is in space... Apparently, while he he flew by a comet and he inhaled space dust, where these Egyptian gods were resting, the the Akkad or the Akkad, and and you named all those Egyptian gods, and these Egyptian gods in indirectly gave him this plague, which would have killed him, but for the fact that this Malik character, his descendant, saved his life by shooting him with lightning. And so it was the power of Shazam that ironically saved Black Adam again. And, but at the same time, he's now sharing powers with Malik, who is white Adam. So we literally have a black and white Adam. <laughs> and so that's kind of cool. Uh, it's very clear here that these new Egyptian gods, they give a warning to Black Adam, these new Egyptian gods. They say that we are coming to earth. Warn the earth. We're coming. Okay. So these gods are coming. What's the big deal? Well, okay, so now we have, now Black Adam seems to have his own, I guess, self-described pantheon of gods. Shazam has his own. Wonder Woman has his own. So Black Ad, or so Christopher Priest is expanding on that mythology here. I, there are, there's definitely a lot of room for a, a fascinating and interesting story here. And he's got my attention. Um, thinking outside the box a little bit, I do wish that for new readers, I have to say this is, DC was, you know, I heard that Christopher Priest didn't even want to do a Black Adam series. They actually begged him to. He actually said that in an interview that he didn't even want the series. They had to, they had to ask him to. When you're when you're asking a writer to write a series that they tell you they don't want to write, come on. And when you're when you have a movie coming out called Black Adam with the number one box office star uh, in the decade, and you have a comic book like this, which even if the story is good and this story has potential, it's got nothing to do with the movie. Uh, and, and that's, I just think that's a little bit of a miss. I'll, I'll happily eat my words if this story ends up being amazing. And there's always two different worlds to a comic book character. There's the comic book stories and then there's the movies. And often they, they, they can be very different. That's fine. It's just that it's just very odd given where Warner Brothers and DC is at right now that they would choose. This is a very, very different take. And, um, that this movie is not going to have this. This is not movie related at all. And Christopher Priest has said that as well. So, um, but, but full props. I, I don't mind the story. It's interesting. I mean, I didn't mind the new 52 origin and this, this is definitely adding to the mythology of Black Adam and his pan and, and his pa uh, pantheon of gods. Um, where's it going to go? I have no idea, but we got six issues left. So this, there's a lot of story that can happen over the next six months, which it's interesting that this story will end 
after the movie has come out, I think. Uh, so, uh, and then it's going to, this, this is going to end post dawn of a new DCU. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, is this character, this Malik character, I imagine we're probably going to see him in the new DC universe once we get post dark crisis. So, so we'll see. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way like when Christopher Priest – he was on the show a while back and he told me after we stopped recording that he had this coming. I was really excited for it. But the more I, that I thought about it because th- this is the way – I mean I love the way that Christopher Priest tells stories. But it, you kind of need to know how to read comics you know, in order to yeah. make and kind of power through. That's a good way of stuff, putting it, yeah. Yeah, because stuff pays off so much later. And then you go back and you have a chance to reread it, knowing what's coming, and it makes more sense. You know, his Deathstroke. I, I struggled with his Deathstroke series when DC Rebirth that, that initiative started, because I, I was so I felt so lost all the time. So if you're looking for a writer who's going to write something that's new reader friendly, you are not looking for Christopher Priest. And <laughs> he didn't mention to me about the, him not really wanting to do it. So yeah, I, I kind of echo Rocky's sentiment. Like if, if if you want it to be new reader friendly for people that are uh, going to see the movie, this is not that. <laughs> and and if you want to get the best out of somebody, you want to give them a project that they're interested in. So interesting choice. Uh, I will say that the Justice Society one-shot files, whatever, those are a much more simplistic approach to these characters, and those are very new reader friendly. So yes. I guess if you're a com- comic retailer, point people in that direction as opposed to this. So anyway... <laughs> Uh, let's move on. We have the next in the series of the Batman One Bad Day one-shots. It's Batman One Bad Day Two-Face, written by Mariko Tamaki. Javier Fernandez does the art. Jordi Belair on colors. Ariana Mare on letters. Um, again, great covers. Stanley Artgerm has a 1 in 25 that where Two-Face, he almost looks like Metamorpho the way his different faces are. He has almost more than two. Uh, the Christian Ward one is very beautiful, especially pinks and purplish colors that you expect from Christian Ward. There's even a Brian Boland cover. Uh, there's a Jim Lee cover. So, yeah, some great covers here. But uh, what do you think of the covers? What do you think of the book? Uh, well, Brian Boland is one of my favorite cover artists. So I got to go with the Brian Boland cover, uh, definitely. Um, and uh, I thought maybe you would like the Jim Lee one because, you know, it's clearly its cast has just beat the crap out of Two-Face. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah it's it's oh oh that oh oh that's a that's a cover that's right uh yeah. yeah i don't mind that i love that's actually i never even thought of it like that but yeah i don't uh i guess uh, yeah it, it, it looks good I, I like it for cassandra kane but uh boland i i got a huge brian boland collection i got like multiple copies of his cover so i'd have to go with brian boland but that's a nice cover too but uh uh as for the story proper uh you and I both loved the Tom King uh, one bad day for uh, for Riddler. I know, I know, and it was a very controversial story. A lot of people didn't like it, you know, online. It was sort of a divisive storyline, but I enjoyed it. You loved it, and um, and the idea that you know, uh, one of my uh, one of my uh, uh, friends uh, colleagues on on Weird Science made the comment that uh, that maybe Marika Tamaki in this one bad day for Two-Face, maybe she forgot what her homework assignment was to use his words. And I think that I sometimes I wonder that as well, because when I think of one bad day, I think of, well, this is, I kind of thought that this was going to be taking Batman's villains one at a time and saying, you know, portraying them at their worst. Tell us something really bad. It's one bad day, something really egregiously horrible at this one 
villain has done. And because um, we, the Riddler definitely got that. And I think I have a sneaking suspicion Tom King's right out of the gate was probably going to be uh, my favorite and maybe your favorite as well. But this Two-Face story I thought was very kind of derivative. Now, what Two-Face does in this story ultimately is that he uh, – Marinagano asks asks him to be a new DA, the new district attorney for of Gotham. So now Marika Tamaki just came off writing the Arkham Tower run, where it's it was quite clearly established that Marinagano probably never wants to try to rehabilitate or or fund the rehabilitation of of Batman's Rogues Gallery ever again because that that ended in disaster. And now all of a sudden Marinagano is asking. Two-Face Harvey Dent to be the district attorney again, but keep him on a really short leash. So right away, it lacked any verisimilitude for me. And it bothered me a bit because Marika Tamaki, you're forgetting your own storyline. It doesn't make sense even given what you just, the storyline that you just wrote. Um, Marigano's own wife was almost killed because of his vain attempt at agreeing to some type of reconciliation for the villains. And here he's offering a job to Harvey Dent, a known psychotic with multiple, with uh, dual personalities. Come on. So that, that didn't sit well with me, but I can let that go because I'm thinking, okay, all right, Tamaki. Now, you know, tell me something about Two-Face that I don't know. And I just thought it was underwhelming. And at the end of the day here, it's, he becomes DA. He's got to prove himself. So Harvey Dent, he does all the things he's supposed to do. He talks with Batman. He says, you know, I'm turning a new leaf. Uh, he's talking to Marinagano. He's putting all the player, putting things in play. And, and out of the blue, and this is new for me, I have never, if, to my knowledge, I've never read a Two-Face story. I never, is this the not the first story where Harvey Dent, where we meet Harvey Dent's father? I've never read a story where I met Harvey Dent's father before. Well, we meet Harvey Dent's father. So right away, I'm thinking to myself, okay, here we go, off to the races, off to the races. You know, how screwed up was Harvey Dent's father? Is it going to be something bad and what have you? And there was just no surprises here. Harvey Dent's father seems to be a, a nice guy, but he's all about legacy. He's all about legacy. And, and uh, Harvey's father, Harvey Dent's father is turning 88 years old. He's quitting his job and they're throwing a party for him because I think he works for the city. And so they just, his father believes in legacy. And his father, maybe you could understandably so, his father was probably a little bit upset when his son Harvey Dent became Two-Face. Can you blame him? And so Harvey Dent goes on this big thing to organize this big party for his father. And, uh, you know, I keep... And and throughout all of this, there's no character work done. We 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 don't get any flashback sequences showing the relationship between Harvey and his father. All we get, we get multiple conversations between spoiler, like Stephanie Brown, Cassandra Kane makes an appearance, and there's more conversations between Batman and all these other characters talking about Harvey Dent. We don't we learn nothing about Harvey Dent other than the fact that he's arranging a birthday party for his dad. And then at the end. In a ridiculously predictable fashion, I mean, I called every plot point as I read it. It was so predictable that literally Harvey Dent's taken over the security of his father's birthday party. 200 people are invited. Right away, the first thing I thought of was, well, if, he's, if Harvey Dent's taken over the security of his father's birthday party, he's probably going to attack his father's birthday party. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, it was, I mean, I literally could write this myself and predictable, cliche, and lo and behold, Harvey Dent has issues with his daddy. He's got daddy issues. What are the daddy issues? I guess he was upset that his dad was upset that he became Two-Face. I thought it was surprisingly one-dimensional. I thought it was surprisingly... We didn't learn nothing new. Uh, there was none of the characters. We learned nothing new about Two-Face. We learned nothing new 
about anybody. Uh, I was stunned at, at there was there was no chances being made here. And when I compare this to Tom King, you know, uh, people might criticize Tom King's Riddler story one bad day for maybe, okay, Riddler wouldn't do this, who's out of character. I don't care. It, he took chances. He went out. I thought it was a fantastic story. And he went out on a limb and he made Riddler badass, kick ass. And he, and he, and he redefined Riddler's capacity for darkness in a way that I don't think will be, uh, bettered for quite some time this is really by the numbers and uh, again the, the the you know the art here is good i don't want to i don't want to take away from the art and everything else uh the uh javier fernandez art was really good jordi Belair and the colors this was this was really good and as we said we talked about the covers everything was good i just thought the story w- left so much to be desired there were so many pages wasted i think on action sequences and batman getting from point a to point b as opposed to telling the story of harvey dent how is this one bad day for Harvey other than it was a bad day for Harvey's dad's at his birthday party. I'll grant you that. But I just thought it was a missed opportunity. And, and I think the shock ending regarding the fate of his father, uh, it, it, it didn't hit for me, but uh, do you feel any different? No, I don't. And, you know, when I talked to Tom King about this um, and he was talking about being approached to do the Riddler story, he talked about the fact like DC, they, they talked about, Killing Joke as uh, as kind of the template, right? What what Killing Joke is for the Joker is what these books need to be for the, their particular villain. So you're right in saying, you know, take a Batman villain and and think about like the worst of them, the worst they can be, magnify it out so that you know they they act out or they have a plan or they do whatever, and it makes for one really bad day in terms of that villain doing a really bad or horrible thing. It makes it, you know, there's multiple meanings. It makes it a really bad day for Batman. Batman comes home at the end of that day dealing with, you know, the worst of the worst version of the Riddler ever. Alfred says, How was your day? Oh, man, I had one bad day. It sure <laughs> was a terrible day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so when you talk about doing that for Two Face, there's so many different directions you could have gone. Um, and I, I feel like Tamaki just scr- scratches the surface. Everything is surface level here. So this didn't feel like anything special in terms of a two-faced story. I like the idea that it introduced his dad. Um, in my mind, if you want to go down that route, like why, you know, just like we did with the Riddler. And, and that's not to say that this would have been the same story and it would have been Tamaki copying what Tom and Mitch did. But that's at least an interesting angle, right? Take this, you know, same central idea of Harvey having daddy issues and give us a, an issue narrated by Harvey explaining why he is the way he is. Just like we finally got a chance to see why the Riddler is the way he is. Like, why is he obsessed with riddles? Why does he abandon the riddles in the end and just become like the most ruthless villain maybe ever that Batman's ever got, you know, gone up against? Yeah. It all made sense. It made, it was scary. It was a menacing, formidable foe for Batman, even to the point, and again, it's an ambiguous ending. And I'm going to spoil it if you haven't read it, but yeah, he appears to kill the Riddler. You know, all those stories are all those questions. So many times like, well, I don't, why doesn't Batman just kill the Joker once and for all? Like, if you really want to save lives, you know, it's whole idea of, you know, the, the train is barreling down the track and there's one person tied to the tracks. Um, but if you divert it, it crashes into, you know, a hundred people. What do you do? Yeah. You kind of like, I let it run over the one guy to save the hundred guys. Right. It's it's that same idea. You kill Joker, yes, you take one life, but you save hundreds, if not thousands, of others. So 
it, it makes a lot of sense to do that. It was cool to see Tom and Mitch elevate the Riddler to that point that even Batman was willing to do that. Um, so you kind of hope that for the same with Two-Face or if not that, because again, it doesn't have to be exactly the same thing, but give us a story where at the end of it, I know something new about Two-Face. The only thing I know new, know, new about Two-Face here is that he has a dad and he yeah. had some issues with him. But so what? Because I don't really know why. Other, It's hinted at, oh, his dad was, was strict. His dad was stubborn. Okay. Like that's not, a, that's just, it's not enough. And that's what I, that's what I feel when I read this. It feels a little bit like a wasted opportunity. Well, not only um, that, like remember that, you know, Harvey Dent was the youngest district attorney in Gotham city history. He was smart. He is intelligent. He was good at what he did. I don't know if you, can you, can you become that if you, if you're terribly abused by your father? I, I mean, I need an explanation as why does he hate his father so much other than this ridiculous legacy explanation that I didn't buy for a second. I, I just, I just felt like it was such a missed opportunity here. When you compare this to the development of the background of the Riddler of Edward Nigma in Tom King's one bad day, this is like night and day in terms of character work. That's what I found so disappointing. The lack of character work here and the background explanation was just stunning to me. Yeah. And it didn't even make sense. Like it's mentioned that, Right before the party, Harvey attempted to erase the DUIs that his um, his new mother-in-law, his new wife. Yeah. yeah, why? What? Why? There's there's no, no explanation for that. like what? Yeah, I, I, I yeah. This just some wasted potential, like a wedding it, gift for him for his dad's or something like that, or a well, I don't. I don't be a, a I, retirement gift, a birthday gift. I I, I don't know. Just, it doesn't make any sense if he was going to kill his dad anyway. Why would he be? Yeah, I don't know. I'm yeah. I'm a bit lost. It didn't really. Uh, yeah, it, it just it just just didn't work for me. Um, you know, it's not a bad story, but it's just it's uh, to me it doesn't live up to what we've had before. And granted, that might be too high of a bar because Tom and <laughs> Mitch really made something. You know, one of the best comics I've read in the last decade. So you know, not everything is going to be that I don't expect it to be that but this just it didn't make sense it didn't it didn't it wasn't additive to Two-Face um, so Two-Face has a dad that's what we learned yeah not not particularly interesting so uh, anyway let's move on to the next book it's Nightwing number 96 written by Tom Taylor we have art by Bruno Redondo Cayo Felipe on inks, Adriana Lucas on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. Oh my God, is this a gorgeous book to look at? The blues and the pinks and the purples just really, really work. It's such a an interesting look that Bruno Redondo has has and and um, sort of uh, specific look that Bruno Redondo has given to this book, and it, it really works because so often in the past, Nightwing has been you know a dark book. You know, it's it's a it's a he's Batman's. Uh, you know, first uh, mentee, you know, Batman's first disciple, if you will. And so, uh, you know, why wouldn't it be a, a, a dark book? He operates at night and they've gone the other way and made it really bright. So I do enjoy that. Now we, we did see at the end of last issue, a bit of a shocker that uh, Blockbuster learned of Dick Grayson's secret identity might not be a problem with the way this issue ends. I'll let Rocky <laughs> talk about that, but it does bring up a, an interesting scene with Dick and Barbara that I really loved where Dick's like, oh, we can't be together anymore uh, because Blockbuster knows my secret identity and you'll never be safe and blah, blah. And Barbara's like, 
we're heroes. We're never going to be safe. Darkseid could attack the planet tomorrow. Kite Man could fall out of the sky at the wrong time. Triton could step on me. Like, I love that Barbara just immediately, like, listen, dumbass. You know, life's too short. We're going to be together and, you know, take it or leave it. Despite everything that's going on, they're they're happy. So that was really – I really enjoyed that. That was a great character moment in an issue that's filled with them. And uh, it starts – but it starts off with a great action scene with uh, – Nightwing and Blockbuster fighting, and it's great to see Nightwing kick the crap out of Blockbuster because he's another one of those arrogant villains that, you know, kind of like King, Kingpin, you just, I mean, he's relentless. He keeps coming back, much like the Kingpin, and at some point, you just kind of get tired of him, get tired of all the bluster and get tired of all the, of all the talk and just want to see him go away, at least for a <laughs> while, you know, because he does seem to be Nightwing's nemesis and, you know, runs Bloodhaven and, and what have you. But in a way, that comes back to bite him when the way that um, Batwoman and, and uh, Batgirl, uh, Barbara Gordon, get all of the henchmen that work for Bloodhaven to kind of abandon him is to say, hey, you know that prison that you guys all go to in Bloodhaven? That <laughs> private prison? Worst prison you've ever been to? Tortured? No sunlight? Barely any food? Yeah, you know who owns that prison and runs it? Blockbuster. So I thought that was a, a really, you know, and a total blockbuster thing to do, right? Of course, yeah. he's making money off the, the own crime that he creates. Um, and so, yeah, there was just moment after moment, including the electrocutioner telling blockbuster once he finds out um, what he thinks about him. You know, it's a big, it's a big F you and good luck finding any henchmen in the future. Um, so by the end of the issue, blockbusters sort of um, depowered or has less power than he's ever had in a long time. And then he's confronted by Heartless um, in a fantastic scene as well. So I, I really enjoyed the issue. Um, we have both talked in the past about the, how the story has sort of been plodding along at times, going kind of slow. Um, but we've gotten a lot of events happening. And it's it's interesting because we, we've said the same thing about uh, Tom Taylor's Superman Son of Kal-El book. And the action and pacing feels like it's picked up in that recently. And we certainly uh, have have had a couple of back-to-back action-packed Nightwing issues. Curious where it goes from here. Um, yeah. So what, what did you think of this? Well, uh, you know, uh, one, one thing that's really great here, uh, in typical Tom Taylor fashion, a lot of great character work. And with uh, this issue ends for Nightwing and Barbara Gordon kissing. Just like in Superman, Son of Kal-El, you have John Kent and Jane Nakamura kissing. So happy ending all around. And uh, one minor criticism, and maybe it's not much of a criticism. Uh, I thought Henry Bendix, the villain Henry Bendix, that I kept wrongly calling John Bendix. I apologize last week. In any event, Henry Bendix, the, the villain in Superman, Son of Kal-El, I, I thought that he was given short thrift. I thought maybe he was too easily disposed of. I do think Blockbuster is too easily disposed of here. I, I called last issue. I didn't think Blockbuster would be foolish enough to try to kill Nightwing in this issue. I thought that Blockbuster's a Blockbuster is brilliant in his own right, but uh, uh, it looks as if um, maybe to Tom Taylor's credit, maybe he's getting rid of the old guard. He's getting rid of the Henry Bendix, and he's getting rid of Blockbuster. And instead, we're getting other new villains to up uh, to come up to the to make a name for themselves. And in this case, Heartbeat literally ripping out the heart of uh, Blockbuster to use for himself at some later date. That's pretty cool. Heart, this, uh, obviously this heartbeat, heart, or uh, <laughs> he wants to, he wants to become a villain in his own right. And so it's going to be interesting to see what he does. Uh, 
You know, it's funny. Uh, the the poster that's going around online about Dawn of the DCU, the solicits for December, the Dawn of the DCU, it shows Nightwing behind the letterhead of Dawn of the DCU. And you can really get a sense of that. And just as the new DCU is dawning, we're probably going to be getting a wedding between Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. That's the rumor. Everybody's sort of kind of talking about it, wondering if it's going to happen. And I can't think of a better couple for the DC that represents the hope of the DCU than Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson. You hit the nail on the head, Jace, in this scene here where Barbara Gordon is sort of sort of like metaphorically given Dick Grayson a bitch slap saying, hey, you know, what's this too dangerous to be together? I love you. You love me. We're superheroes. This is what we do. And it's a great scene. It's a good scene. You know what? Maybe this is one of those moments and I, I, I keep criticizing a little, uh, constructively criticizing Tom Taylor. And then I turn around and say, you know what? I'm going to let that go because this is such a, every comic book is a feel good comic and we just don't get enough of them. And so, you know, Tom Taylor does it again. I, I, you know, I'm here I am, I'm trying to nitpick, but at the end of the day, I got a smile on my face when I finished reading this comic. And by the way, I love the Brady Bunch cover. I had fun with it on the thumbnails for those, uh, for those, uh, uh, watching or listening on the podcast. It's a beautiful sort of Brady Bunch kind of cover showing all the, the characters that have been in uh, the Bat family in a, in a Brady Bunch kind of, uh, you know, whatever nine panel grid. And, um, uh, it just, all around, it says so much because the Brady Bunch symbol on the cover uh, is sort of like, because this is all about family. This is where really Nightwing is, the, is creating his own family. And what this issue establishes is now Bloodhaven, the city of Bloodhaven itself, is a, a member, is, is its own, is is getting a life of its own, just like Gotham City is, uh, with the Haven and with, you know, he's, he's part of this city now and he's the billionaire philanthropist. And one has to wonder now that Alfred is back, if Alfred is really back, will Alfred want his billion dollars back from Dick Grayson? <laughs> but that's, that's another issue. <laughs> yeah. There was some controversy about this covers. People were mad that, um, Signal wasn't on there. Oh. <laughs> Luke Thomas. I don't know if you heard that uh-huh. when this first got posted. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I had, and Tom Taylor was saying, all the people that have appeared that appear on this Brady Bunch style cover are people that have appeared in the Nightwing book, and Signal has not yet appeared. But people yeah. still pushed back and argued with him about that yeah. that he was um, <laughs> racist and and anti diversity or whatever. I'm like, do you know who you're talking to here? Yeah, you're talking <laughs> really? to Tom Taylor. That, that's like the exact opposite of. But anyway, uh, all right. Up next, we have Duo. Again, I'm not sure why this seems to happen with the Duo previews that we get. I'm not sure why, but we don't have a credits page. We know it's written by Greg Pak. We know Koi Pham does the pencils. Scott Hanna on inks. I, Chris Sotomayor, I believe, does the colors. Not sure who does the letters, unfortunately. Um, we get a bit of a, a flashback here. Um, back to before... Um, the two main characters were infected with that. Well, the David was infected with nanites um, and Kelly, you know, her body was destroyed her consciousness now sharing that same body that's infected with nanites. So we get a flashback to them working on the, those nanites and um, kind of seeing what, you know, what their plans were for uh, a better world as it were. And that gives us sort of context to what happens um, later in the issue. So at the end of last issue, they were fighting. Uh, Kelly had control of David's body, and they were uh, attacked by uh, Doctor Tinker, his Tinker Technologies, by all these androids because he wants the 
the nanite technology to take over the world and, and you know supposedly for you know one of these who I'm going to take over the world and I'm going to rule everything because I'm the smartest and I'm going to make everything better and there won't be any disease and hunger and that sort of thing and Kelly takes over because David is is a little more of the squeamish of the two a little more of the he's less assertive than Kelly is Kelly takes over the body sends the nanites out takes over the robot army and then says no we'll use our powers we'll do everything we know best David's trying to talk her down, saying, we can't do this. We can't save everybody, but Kelly doesn't want to hear it. And she goes out. And again, this is where the this opening scene with them talking about their dreams of what they can do with the nanites plays out. Because we see Kelly in control of David's body with the nanites, goes out among the, the homeless and, and the sick and starts healing people, you know, almost like a modern day Jesus Christ. You know, Messiah has returned um, and she's healing people, whether it's a toothache or hives or sore foot or, or whatever. Um there does come to a point where a woman comes up with cancer and David is trying to do the whole, I told you so to Kelly, because they, they, they don't have enough experience, both with their powers and, and just in terms of like, what is cancer? How would you fix it? That sort of thing. Um, but Kelly does tell the woman, you know, we're not going to forget about you. You know, the world's going to be a better place, blah, blah, blah. Well, Tinker, he's not to be denied his, his power, right? So he goes to the immutables who are these immortals who at one point thought that, um, that David and Kelly, what they were doing might create more uh, immortals or more people who might uh, rival them. And they have told us, you know, the reason they don't make more immutables or they, they kind of keep to themselves is because, and they're worried about what David and Kelly have planned, but you don't want too many people that are immortal. Then you run out of uh, resources even faster if nobody's dying, right? People are still born. Everybody lives forever. Finite resources. It, the math just doesn't work. Um, so David, uh, or Tinker, rather, Dr. Tinker, following the whole um, adage of, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, goes to the immutables and convinces them, hey, come help me take down um, David and Kelly. Uh, but then as soon as he does, as soon as they do, as soon as the immutables, immutables help Dr. Tinker, Dr. Tinker turns on them. And the immutables, immutables, at least some of them, say to their leader, hey, we told you that this guy wasn't to be trusted. You know, we knew he would do this. And uh, it, it's just a very interesting dynamic because Greg Pak is coming up with some really interesting ideas. The interpersonal politics between David and Kelly are interesting. The politics between what they want, you know, socially, this utopia kind of thing, that those politics versus the politics of the immutables versus, versus the politics of Dr. Tinker, they're all like none of them sees themselves as the bad guy. And from a certain perspective, none of them is the bad guy. They all have a point with what they want and what they're trying to do. It just makes for a really interesting dynamic, right? They all sort of want the same end goal, uh, a better earth and um, end people's suffering and things like that. But they all think about trying to get there in different ways. Um, and that's just a book that really provides a lot of interesting perspectives. And so I'm really impressed with this. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, the Koi Fam art, uh, he, he's a talented artist. He's a good storyteller. The only nitpick I have about the art is uh, he doesn't really experiment with breaking outside of um, any of the panel borders ever. And it's it's typically just like widescreen full-length panels that go across the whole page. There's not really any interesting panel layouts or dynamic panel layouts. It's, it's a little bit paint by the numbers. Not, not to say that it gets boring, um, but it might read as a little more dynamic story. 
especially with these powers David has going up against these immutables, which are, you know, interesting and, and kind of colorful characters, uh, just in terms of their different visual looks. Uh, it would be kind of interesting to, to see him experiment a little bit more. Uh, but again, it's, it's a minor nitpick because his sto- visual storytelling is really, really strong. So, uh, what'd you think? Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head for me when you, when you talked about how there, there's almost, there's almost no bad guy here. There kind of is. It's probably Dr. Tinker. He's the most aggressive and he probably, he's most, probably the most power hungry out of all of them. But the, the idea of the, the limits of healing and, and godhood and, you know, to what extent should David and Kelly use their power to heal? And, and even in the midst of while they're healing a lot of the homeless people who have various ailments, they realize the limits of their power because they're, they're not sure exactly what the full consequences of them using their power are. Uh, the, the, uh, Kelly comes across one person that might, that she's a little bit worried she can't quite cure her of cancer. Uh, but, but she promises that they will, they, they, you know, right away, they realize that, you know, even if you have all the power of healing in the world, there's a lot more people than there are than just, you know, there's a lot of people on the planet and everyone in their own way is in need of some kind of healing. And there's, there's really no such thing as a Duke Ek Machina that can do it all. And yet, and then, so we have this struggle here where even the immutables, these immortal beings that they, they've got, they're worried about David and Kelly because they don't, they don't want, you know, they don't want the David and Kelly to abuse their power, and they, and uh, they're they're very careful as immortals themselves not to 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 sort of stay behind the scenes and to sort of protect uh, humanity. And it, you know, David and Kelly, if if they're going to be utilizing all the power, maybe they should. Maybe the immutables should be more pronounced in their own abilities and more helpful. So it, it's it, the philosophical questions that you pose yourself as the reader, and you know, whose side would you be on? Would you side with Marius? The leader of the immutables would you would you be more like uh kelly uh, i love the fact that kelly is so much more aggressive than david david is wants to negotiate kelly's a little bit more aggressive more willing to maybe kick a little ass and and directly engage in the healing and then dr tinker is just more of the military man willing to go that extra mile willing to kill uh in order to achieve the greater good and uh, and also is, is also just plain greedy so all the different dichotomies here. Uh, Greg Pack, as a writer, he's done a really good job here. I really wish this title was 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 being got more attention than it did. I wish the sales were higher. It, it does deserve it. I think it's just kind of a new, it's a new concept. Or I I think you said maybe if this was is, is this a brand new milestone character or is this based on previous characters? Do you know? Oh, you're on mute. Sorry. Yeah, it's brand new. These aren't characters that showed yeah. up in. Uh, in the old version of Milestone. Yeah. Well, I, I'm impressed. I'm I, like I said, we're we're five issues in here, and I'm not sure. Is this actually a series, or is this going to just be six issues long? I don't even know. Yeah, as far as I know, it's on. It's an ongoing. I haven't oh. seen anything about it being. I, a, I'm glad. A I'm glad because yeah. I'm I'm enjoying this more than some DC ongoing. So. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, all right, let's move on. We have uh, a new Titans United. We we really enjoyed the first one. So we have a new one. This one's Titan United Blood Pact, written by Kevin Scott, Lucas Myers, the artist, Tony Avina on colors, Carlos and Mongual on letters. Um, man, this was some fantastic art and an interesting story. Uh, what did you think? 
Uh, you know what? I, I enjoyed the first Titans United series. Uh, Kevin Scott surprised the heck out of me. And uh, once again, this is another series. Uh, again, Kevin Scott's also the writer on this one, too. I love the art. This feels like the old Teen Titans to me, even though it's, you know, the continuity is not exactly the same. It's a little wonky. There's a mixture of old Titans and new and a little bit of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But it just works for me. It it's not exactly the same, but it feels familiar enough that I'm really enjoying it. It's actually kind of, uh, I, I wish this is what Young Justice was. I wish, I wish Fitz, Fitz Martin captured the magic of Young Justice the way Kevin Scott captures the essence of, 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 of the classic Teen Titans, uh, the, in Titans United here, uh, because this is a way of sort of making me feel this feels like the classic Teen Titans to me under Wolfman and Perez, but yet these are older characters, but yet the same characters. But it, it just feels like they the, this, the sensibilities are the same, and it uh, I find that it uh, it works quite well. Uh, and the essence of this story, this opening issue is just firing on all cylinders. It's basically one long action scene with the Titans with the Titans United fighting the fearsome five, and it's one. One long uh, action scene that ends with brother, brother blood and mother mayhem showing up at the end and basically convincing Raven and taking over Raven. And then uh, basically Tim Drake finally arriving on the scene only to discover a statue of Raven suggesting, I think that maybe time has been changed and there's because there's a statue of Raven and something has happened because of what Brother Blood has done because the Titans are ultimately defeated because Brother Blood utilizes the Fearsome Five but just before the Fearsome Five are going to be handily defeated by uh, Titans United Brother Blood shows up with Mother Mayhem and ultimately by the time Tim Drake gets there in civilian clothes he ends up confronting uh, Jinx who uh, Jinx who's a member of the Fearsome Five but she, as she tells him that uh, something is amiss because uh, this particular story, this opening issue is called Conversion, and it ends with a statue of the Church of Raven and, as opposed to the Church of Brother Blood. So what happened here? Did time change? Where did that statue come from? Did Tim, did, did, uh, I'm, so I got a lot of questions. I'm a little confused with how this ended, or maybe maybe you can explain it to me. But I, I think it's probably going to be ex- explained in subsequent issues. But I, I really like this. I, I thought it was, uh, you know, uh, I'm guessing there's some time travel shenanigans or some something's been changed in the past by Brother Blood and Mother Mayhem. And I'm looking forward to it because I had a lot of fun in Titans United. Those opening uh, that original series. Uh, with Starfire and Blackfire and all that jazz. I had a lot of fun. And Kevin Scott here continues to impress me. So what do you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. I mean, it, it all has, as far as the change of reality, it all has to do with that that bloodstone that the Fearsome Five or the Feeble Five, as Garth likes to refer to them, <laughs> uh, which I thought was great. Uh, I mean, Kevin Scott, just, he, he, he knows these characters. clear that he has uh, history reading the Titans and knows these characters. But yeah, when Raven touches it, you know, Brother Blood sort of tempts her and says, hey, this this bloodstone was created by your father, Trigon, and it's your destiny, and she touches it, and it seems to, yeah, cha- literally change reality. Um, yeah. There's a big cocoon, and then when <laughs> Tim Drake comes to, he's no longer in costume, uh, and he talks about not being a hero anymore, but, but still a hero, you know, even if he's not necessarily, uh, you know, in costume or what have you. Uh, and then, yeah, he helps rescue somebody who's being uh, attacked by this disciple of Brother Blood. 
and, and, you know, talks about the church of blood and you must be fighting against. She's like, what are you talking about? It's a church of the Raven. So yeah, clearly by Raven interacting with this bloodstone, it's, it's sort of changed reality. So I don't know if it's necessarily time travel per se, more like a, a, a retcon or, you know, some, something was changed in, in, in the past, but you know, we're not in the past. We are, you know, still in, in present day. So yeah. Uh, again, what I love about this, what we loved about the Titans United, um, the first series is that you don't need to read anything else in DC. It doesn't matter where this fits or what, what have you. It totally stands on its own. You can almost say it's like a black label book in that way. It's now it's not mature themed or oversized or anything. So it's not getting the black label, uh, trade dress or anything, but you know, it, it is totally standalone, you know, and I think you know, it's, they're stamped at that watch the Titans on HBO Max. So it's exactly what we were talking about with the Justice Society files, one shots, or kind of what we think DC should have done with Black Adam, right? Like if you have a property on another medium that's popular enough and you want people to have a series they can jump on that is new reader friendly, but still has, you know, action and great art. And all that, because Lucas Meyer's art here is absolutely fantastic, uh, then that that's what this is. It's such a gorgeous book in color, in action, the way the, the colors pop off the page, the ener- energy's crackling. Um, Lucas Meyer's got some fantastic page layouts. There's a couple of double-page spreads with Brother Blood when he first gets his hands on the Bloodstone. And then when Raven touches it and there's that big crackoom, we get a close-up of all these different faces from the Titans and the Fearsome Five to see the, you know, their reaction in that moment. Like this is just a fun comic that doesn't require a lot of thought, you know, in terms of, Oh, well, we, what happened to the teen Titans in the past? Well, what's going on with dark crisis? We, what, what was future state? Who's red X? You don't need any of that. You can just pick this up and read it within the covers, of the you know, front and back cover of this comic is everything you need to know about this comic and about these characters and anything that you're not quite sure about. Just keep reading and Kevin Scott's going to tell you. So uh, I, I think this is fantastic. I love this approach, and it's working for me on uh, on a lot of levels. So, uh, yeah. all right. Speaking of fantastic writers, up next we have The Flash, number 786, High Speed Alert, from writer Jeremy Adams. M&K Nahelipan is the artist. Jeremy Cox and Peter Pantazist on colors. We've got Justin Birch on letters. Uh Man, is this a lot of fun? And is this a, a perfect example of how you can tell a story that, that ties into a bigger story? I mean, writers aren't always, they don't always have complete control over, you know, their own book in terms of, Hey, I've got to, you know, cross over with, you know, this big event that's going on. But so. You know, Jeremy Adams is doing that and he's doing it well. He's still having the Flash family as, you know, part of this event, but he still takes the time to give us great character moments, you know, whether it's Irie, you know, putting Damian Wayne in his place or Wally (laughs) teaming up with his kids to trick Linda into letting the kids come along or whether it's, uh, whether it's Jay Surge as uh, he comes to call himself learning about the power of doing the thunderclap that super strength uh, <laughs> heroes can do. And you get a hand clap and you get a hand clap and you get a hand clap. <laughs> like we get everything we need for the dark crisis tie in and it all makes perfect sense. And it advances that story really, really well, but we never lose sight. We never lose the tone and the feel 
of the regular Jeremy Adams flash book, which Jeremy was on the show and said to, to both of us, yeah, I want it to be a book that's for all ages. I want it to be fun. I want it to be accessible. I don't ever want it to be a book where a parent wouldn't want to want their kid to read it. That's what this is. It's, it's family friendly in, in more ways than one, right? Like yeah. it's, it's great for all ages. It's also family friendly and that it highlights the Flash family. We're not just getting Wally here and, and Linda, who's yet to get a code name. And we're not just getting the, are they the, called the tornado twins in the future? Isn't that? What I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, here it's just obviously Jay and Irie, but yeah. we're also getting Jay Garrick Flash. We're getting Max yeah. Mercury. We're getting Jesse Quick. Um, yeah, it's just this is everything I want in a Flash comic, and while and I'm saying that as somebody who I'm not a Wally West guy, I'm a Barry Allen guy. Not that I don't enjoy Wally, um, but you know my first choice of Flash is always going to be Barry Allen. So uh, I think for fans of of Barry uh, of Wally West Flash in that kind of golden era that people think about um, the Jeff Johns run, the Mark Wade run when it was. Wally and Linda and the kids. Um, this harkens back to that in so many ways. And the fact that, that Jeremy Adams is able to do that in the current DCU, which is, you know, can, can be a little depressing these days. He keeps it light. He keeps it fun. Um, and he gets to even write Power Girl and make her fun and interesting. So, I mean, this was just a fantastic issue. I was sort of surprised that when you said you had, mul- you know, fa- multiple favorite of the week, you know, like Co. Yeah. Uh, I thought this was going to be one of them. I was kind of surprised when you named uh, named well, the other is, two. This is a good one. Uh, I'm gonna I'm, I give high compliments to this one too. I don't I don't want to interrupt you because there's so much no, to I, like about this. Is there's no, so that, much that, to like about yeah, this. That, that that that's the last I was going to say. Other than uh, the other thing about this book that's been super consistent throughout the run with Noella Pant's art is the Jeremy Cox colors. He's joined by Peter uh, Pantazis on this issue, but. Like I always say, those bright colors that pop off the page, those primary colors that help to give it a traditional superhero feel. So the art and colors in this one are as as fantastic as ever. Some great double page spreads, um, and yeah, those char- those character moments. <laughs> there are uh, there are a couple of them that are yeah. so fun. Um, Doing the uh, the uh, surge doing the cannonball was uh, another fun moment. So. Yeah, uh, I, I like the moment where Jay was bugging Arsenal about his cap, saying, "Are you are you yeah. sure you are you sure you like wearing that cap? Uh, say, are you sure you you like that cap you're wearing?" It's like yeah, it doesn't really look very good, and and even Ra- <laughs> and even Raven is tending to agree with uh, Jay. But uh, yeah, there, there's so so many fun moments in in this issue. I love I love seeing Maxine Baker. I think this is her debut as Animal Girl in costume as Animal. Girl girl that's what i love so you're seeing maxine baker show up and and have Irie get so excited like two girls excited to meet each other while they're battling bad guys it was so much fun and uh, i just i i have to make this one criticism of dc not this comic i love this comic but how tragic that we got world without a justice league with those terrible tie-ins about world without a justice league this is a dark crisis tie-in. Why? Because we got Clarion the Witch Boy. Clarion the Witch Boy is a member of the Dark Army. Think of how much better we could have gotten with uh, every DC title having one member of the D- uh, of the Dark of Prize Dark Army attacking of a, a, a number of heroes in in any random number of DC books. 
it would have been so much better than the nonsense and the nonsensical storyline of whatever the hell they're trying to say in World Without a Justice League. This is Jeremy Adams. This feels so much fun. And when you think about it, what he pulled off was masterful because Clarion the Witch Boy is empowered by the great darkness. And, and Clarion the Witch Boy, it's so funny as Clarion the Witch Boy is looking so dark and ominous. And he's, he's basically reading the riot act to, to bear, you know, Wally's gonna, it's really trying to scare him. <laughs> and he's about to do his magical coup de grace. And then, and then all of a sudden he discovers that Wally, while, while you were talking, I just did a containment spell that I learned from my other yes. friends. <laughs> it was so funny. Totally took the wind out of clearing the witch boy's sails. And it, it was just when you're expecting this epic, really dark, dark moment becomes a moment of comedy uh, and levity that is so welcoming in the context of this comic and particularly in the context of this dark and gloomy crisis where this is an absolute breath of fresh air and when you think that there's there's kids here involved in this fight with, with Linda just getting her own costume and her debut in her costume Maxine uh, Baker debut her costume as uh, Animal Girl there's so much to love here the dialogue is fun this is this is uh, this is a this is absolutely uh, a comic that um, you know I mean it, it, this is a joy to read I wish I wish every Dark Crisis tie-in would be like this. And uh, kudos to Jeremy Adams, man. I mean, man, you can just tell the guy is passionate about this character. It, this this is a title that, that keeps getting better and better. So, yeah, I mean, really a great, great comic book. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. It's so fun. It's just, you know, you read it, it brings a smile to your face. So, yeah. Uh, okay, last book we're going to talk about um, – uh, specifically, there are a couple of other single issues that came out. And like I said, the, the Harley Quinn will do uh, separately. Uh, but the, the final one is DC versus Vampires All Out War number three, written by Alex Pacnadal and Matthew Rosenberg. Pencil, ink, and gray tone by Pasquale Colano. Red tones by Nicola Wright. Letters by Troy Petrie. And then we have the, the backup, which sort of gives the origin of how Dick Grayson became the king of the vampires, which is written by Emma Vaselli with art by Hanning, uh, letters by Troy Petrie. So uh, what do you think of this? Well, I uh, one of the things that's made artistically how this uh, DCV Vampires All at War has stood out artistically, and I'm assuming they're going to do this for all six issues, this is the third issue, is everything's in, in black and white and red. And I'm not, I'm not a big fan of it, but I will admit that there are moments where artistically it looks kind of cool. I will say in this particular issue, I find that there were moments where I was actually very confused as to what was going on. And I wasn't sure who some of the characters were. Uh, but having said that, I, I understand the gist of the story. And to be very blunt, I'm enjoying DC Vampires. I'm not enjoying it as, as much as Deceased. But what I like about it is it's sort of like that. It's taken that Injustice playbook, you know, where you, you have an you have a totally alternate universe with DC characters that are all 100% expendable, all to, in service of a good story. This is a good story. Uh, you know, uh, miles will vary in terms of, you know, whether you like this more than deceased or what have you. Obviously, that's up to individual readers. But there, there's a story to be told here. This is... It's plot centric. It's plot heavy, but it's got good character work. Uh, Alex, uh, Alex 
Picknadal and Matthew Rosenberg, I think, are, are in fine form here. Matthew Rosenberg, in particular, continues to get a very good handle and solidify himself as a solid DC writer. I think he's making more of a name for himself at DC than he did uh, when he was over at Marvel. Uh, mind you, I'm not familiar with all his Marvel work, but in any event, I... I enjoyed this. I, I enjoyed this. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not entirely familiar who Baron Cinder is, but apparently you and I had some questions as to who, was that Lex Luthor? Uh, is Lex Luthor? But apparently it's Baron Cinder in Lex Luthor's armor, and Baron Cinder is this character. He's trying to keep his body together, and he feeds off cosmic radiation that Starfire has. We find out that Starfire is uh, still alive. Starfire, of course, was. Was uh, it was her blood that when one of when one of the vampires, uh, uh, Starfire has the ability. Her blood is so unique that when a vampire tastes Starfire's blood, they gain the ability to stay alive in sunlight or something. It makes them more powerful or something. And in any event, so Starfire is a key player. This involves uh, a couple of teams going in, led by Deathstroke, along with Batwoman, going in to rescue Starfire and also. Also, ultimately, to rescue Weather Wizard, because Weather Wizard is controlling and blocking out the sun. Starfire has the ability to power up Baron Cinder, and she's got unique blood as well. And ultimately, of course, uh, the key players here are Weather Wizard, Starfire. And ultimately, we know Supergirl is a key player over, and she's in Australia in, in, in the main series proper of the deceased universe, all with the idea of bringing back the sunlight in order to ultimately defeat the vampires that are led by King, the King Vampire himself, Dick Grayson. And it's Dick Grayson in the backup feature where we learn how Dick Grayson became King of the Vampires. And that involved him being led into uh, sort of being tricked and betrayed by his half-sister Miranda, uh, uh, Miranda Zuko, uh, to ultimately become, uh, unfortunately, uh, attacked successfully, eaten or or bitten by vampires to become uh, king of vampires and ultimately killing the queen of, I think, the queen of Scots, uh, the the head vampire queen. But... uh, a lot of action here. We we already saw the death of Constantine. We see in this issue we see we see more death, more destruction. Uh, you know, interesting use of color. Uh, again, I, I was uh, there's a couple sequences that I thought were a little wonky to me, but you know, I, I liked I liked the fact that this. We have Azrael. I actually like that Batman is not actually in this series. Batman has actually stayed dead. And Azrael is sort of, was, is sort of like the, he's sort of in the Batman lead. And we, we are, we are told here that apparently Dick Grayson, the head of the vampires, wants Azrael to be his right hand, right hand vampire man, so to speak. And so we'll see what comes of that. This seems like a, a series that never seems to want to end this DCV vampires. It seems to be going on forever. Uh, but, I gotta admit, the story is not bad. Not as good as Deceased. Deceased, I would love to have more series of Deceased. But this DC Vampires is slowly growing on me more and more. Um, nothing really stands out as really like rocking my world here. Although I do like the kick-ass Mary Marvel uh, here because she's, especially because she has a red costume. She really look, looks amazing on the page in these black, white, and red pages. 
but uh and batwoman too a lot of gorgeous pages when there's one particular page that's gorgeous batwoman and starfire uh, starfire's rescuing uh, batwoman and because of their because of the shades of red utilized some of the pages here look really really gorgeous just coincidentally because of the colors of the costumes of the various characters in play so um uh, i think that overall I think this is going to read probably much better when this six issue series is collected as a, maybe a hardcover. This is probably going to look better maybe as an oversized hardcover, the black, white, and red might really pop off the page better than reading it individually for me, but we'll, I'll have to wait and see. So uh, what do you think? Yeah, I'm enjoying it, but I, I didn't enjoy this particular issue as much as, as past issues. Um, I, I feel like past issues, we got a lot more of, uh, of characterization of the, of these characters of, of characters that we're familiar with, whether it be Slade or John Constantine or, or whomever, um, Midnighter, uh, like scenes of them in this world that's obviously, you know, different than anything they ever expected. And so they act a little bit differently. And, you know, maybe in the case of Slade, he's a little more hardcore. In the case of Supergirl, she seems a little more, you know, kind of run down and, and kind of, on her last legs, if you will, a little resigned to, to not being able to help since there's no sunlight. So interesting characterization because there are characters you know and the characterization is, is somewhat true, but it's skewed based on the, the fact that they're in this interesting um, situation that, that we haven't seen before, you know, world, the, D, the DC universe run by vampires. We got a lot less of that in this issue. In this issue, we got almost like this heist plot to, bake it, to break into this blood farm and um, and rescue uh, a Starfire, and it, so this issue felt a little bit more plot driven, right? Like we we know one team needs to go in and, and rescue Weather Wizard because apparently Weather Weather Wizard can you know clear all the ash and bring the sunlight back and really kind of give humanity a chance to, to defeat the vampires. The other half of people are going after Starfire. Not really sure exactly why, other than obviously she's a very powerful hero and she can't be converted into a vampire. So um, I, I didn't enjoy this issue as much as previous issues. Just based on that, I, I kind of missed that characterization. This felt like a more plot-driven issue. Um, I'm, I also kind of feel the same way you do about the art. Like it was cool, you know, in the first issue to see something different. And I thought it kind of worked being that it's just – black and white and grayscale with a little bit of red here and there, but it, there's so much red in this issue that it, and you know, this is what the third issue of this now. So the, the novelty of it is kind of worn off for me. Um, so I didn't enjoy the art as much either. It's not, again, not to say the art is, is bad by any means. I think the art is still really, really good. Um, but I question whether it, it wouldn't be just as good if, if it was full color. And then as far as the, the backup story, I, I feel the same way that I did about the first part. Like I, I appreciate that we're getting the story of how Nightwing got turned into the King of the Vampires, but I, I said it at the time when it, when Dick Grayson was, or Nightwing was revealed as the head of the vampires, I felt like it was totally a decision made purely for shock value. Like who's the character that's most beloved in the DCU and let's make him the bad guy, right? You could have, could have made an argument for Wally West, Wally's been put through so much crap in the last eight years or so between uh, Heroes in Crisis and and all that aftermath that I, I think they probably decided, well, hey, we better leave him alone. Well, who's up next? Well, Dick Grayson, right? The one everybody – if Wally embodies hope in the 
a DC universe, then Dick Grayson, I would argue, um, embodies heroism uh, in the DCU and Superman would be kind of inspiration. Um, but yeah, Dick is who all the, Dick, Dick is a hero's hero, right? Who all the other heroes look up to. Um, and so again, feels like shock value. I'm not a big fan of the choice. So every time we get one of these backup stories of how he became a vampire, it's just a reminder that he is king of the vampires, which I don't particularly enjoy that decision. That being said, it is sort of interesting and you do see it's not like he had a choice. I mean, they literally all laid on top of him, you know, hundreds of vampires attack him and he gets <laughs> bit. You know, what choice does he have? And he you know, you mentioned he he does kill um the oldest of, of the vampires, you know, hoping that it was in time to stop himself from being turned. It wasn't. Um you know, he does kill Mary uh or it kills Pandora, the oldest and strongest of them, and then asks where where is Mary Queen of Blood, who is, you know, obviously the most uh powerful and leader of the vampire. So he's now a vampire. How does he go from being just a vampire to taking out Mary Queen of Bloods and being the king of the vampires? I mean, maybe there's still some of the heroism left in him at this point, and he thinks if I can uh kind of dethrone or um you know, depose Mary queen of blood. I can take over and I can rule the vampires in a, um, altruistic way, but then maybe the, just the fact of being a vampire cor- corrupts him. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but in terms of the story, I guess, you know, I'm, I, I'm a little curious, but I could do without this mostly because I just like to ignore the yeah. fact that Dick Grayson is the king of the vampires. So, but you make uh, but, an, in- but, yeah. you, you make an interesting point though, that I never caught until you said it. So you think that, that actually is a good point. He says, Dick Grayson says, I couldn't stop it from happening. I couldn't. So he's thinking that if he kills the king, the queen of the vampires, he'll stop his transformation into a vampire. You think that's what he's thinking? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, I, I, I don't know. That, that's all I could, that, that, you know, that's all I could think because, you know, he, he gets attacked and his, his, you know, sister's there saying, is it yeah. done? You know, has it been turned? And, and, you know, when all the other vampires pull away, she says, you killed Pandora, the oldest and strongest of us. He's like, I, I had no choice, but I was too late. So I was like, yeah, he was thinking, you know, she was probably the one that, you know, the, looks to be the main one that bit him. So he, you know, by, he was trying to stop her. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and, and maybe it has something to do with that's how he gets so powerful, even though he's a newer vampire, right? Because he yeah. was bit by her, but then he killed her. So does some of her, you know, longevity, because he would be... The, I mean, typically the way vampire lore works, if somebody turns you, then you're kind of an underling of the vampire that turned you. Right. Well, he doesn't worry about that because he's already killed the vampire. That, yeah. That well, plus he's her. bitten by all of them. So I don't know which one do you pick? Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he's bitten <laughs> on the neck. It looks like he's bitten uh, on the neck by Pandora, but yeah, he's yeah. got bites all over because they all, yeah, they all fell uh-huh. upon, upon him. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it's she's definitely the first one. Yeah, she's definitely the first one that bites him because you, you see it if you scroll up a little bit on that page. You see him kind of tears running down his face and right. um, she's leaning over his neck and then she bites him and then they all kind of fall upon, uh, fall upon him. So, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting story. I'm not the biggest vampire guy. And, and you know, I've, I've been kind of up and down about the DC vampires uh, corner or, or st- whole story arc or world, if you will. Cause like we've both talked about, yeah, it, it started to catch on and was successful. So, you know, now they got to milk it. Like, don't, don't do that. Don't make, don't be Marvel DC. You're not Marvel. 
Don't <laughs> try to go to the well too often. So, okay. Uh, anyway, let's talk about <clears throat> a few of the other single issues that are coming out today. Uh, like I said, there is that Harley Quinn 30th anniversary special, 100 pages. We'll cover that in a spotlight that'll come out uh, tomorrow. There's also uh, Looney Tunes, issue number 268. And then we have some collections. Uh, Dark Knights of Steel, volume one, has a hardcover. Uh, the second volume of Robin, the Joshua Williamson's Lazarus Island story, uh, has its uh, second trade paperback come out. Uh, there is a trade paperback of Blue Beetle. We know there's a Blue Beetle movie on the way. Jamie Reyes, book one, trade paperback. Batman's No Man Land gets Omnibus Volume 2. That was a huge story. Went, went on for like a year and a half, uh, which was interesting. Uh, it's notable for two things, I would say, more than the story itself, which is, is good, but kind of typical comic book fair. But it's notable for the first appearance of Harley Quinn in the regular DCU and also the introduction of Cassandra Cain. Um, and you know, you could argue about which is most important there. Uh, Harley Quinn and the Gotham City Sirens get, uh, Omnibus hardcover. War for Earth 3 gets a trade paperback. Um, honestly, I'd have to recommend staying away from that. Rocket yeah. was pretty disappointing in the way that all played out. Yeah. If you're curious about it, you can go back and listen to our spotlights where we talked about those five issues on their own individual episodes. Uh, and then finally, Black Adam, the Dark Age trade paperback with a really cool, uh, Alex Ross cover, and this is um, Peter J. Tomasi, pencils by Doug Monkey, uh, and it collects this, the six issue miniseries that came out of the fifty-two weekly series. Yeah. And that's that's so, a very good series. I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it is very very good. So, so, what's your what's your pick of the week? As if I don't know. Uh, my pick of the week, actually, you know what? I, it might not be quite as as clear cut as you think because there's a lot of of options. I mean. Batman, I mean, you know, World's Finest, your, one of your co-picks was very good. Batman the Night was very good. Duo was very good. Um, but at the end of the day, and part of the reason I'm picking this and in, uh, you know, interest of full disclosure is oftentimes when you, there's like oftentimes two books and, you know, you'll pick one and I'll pick the other. This time you, there's like three, you pick two, <laughs> I'll pick the other and I'll go with Flash 786. With an honorable mention to Nightwing, because that one was awfully good as well. I mean, I, there really were quite a few great, great books this week. But yeah, and again, that the Guy Gardner characterization in War of the Ended Gods yeah. just still has me laughing. But yeah, I'll, 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 I'll go with The Flash. I thought it was yeah. fantastic. Well, uh, you know what? I, you, when you and I were talking about it, I changed my mind. Uh, so uh, your excitement about it, my, my talking about it, and your excitement about it. I'm going to pick The Flash too. It does edge oh. out World's Finest and Deceased. The Guy Gardner scenes in Deceased are pretty damn funny. Uh, World's yeah. Finest is good. Nightwing's good. But no, Flash Flash just had too many great moments. So I got to go with Flash. I got to go with Flash, yeah. man. There we go. Glad glad, <laughs> glad to have you on board. You know, <laughs> yeah. again, not that the others not that the others weren't deserving. But yeah, yeah. I think it was, overall it was, it was a solid week um, despite a few. Um, and, and again, nothing bad, just – I had higher expectations for, you know, a few, a few of these things. Yeah. Um, so, oh, for sure. uh, anyway, uh, we've been talking about it for a while. I know we're, it's going to happen. We're going to get to the unboxing video. We're going to get to the best jacket. Um, I just had some family stuff going on, daughter's birthday and whatnot. So we're promised we're going to get to it. Uh, also should have some, uh, interviews up later this week with some, uh, creators with some, uh, crowdfunding 
some some Zoop campaigns that are going on. So look for that later this week. Uh, did you get a chance to do your um, independent? Uh, yeah, yesterday I, it's I, it's up online here. I did uh, Jim at the Weird Science. We did uh, reviewed some uh, independent comics. Uh, there's something yeah, about something uh, something, uh, something wrong with with Patrick Todd and uh, True Cult Number Two, and uh, there's a couple of other ones there. Masquerade by uh, Kevin Smith, and uh, there's uh, yeah we've you know just check out uh, check out the the Comic Boom uh, YouTube site here and. Uh, it's it's on the it's on the main cover page of Comic Boom exclamation point and so yeah and uh, I'll be reviewing we'll be doing some more of Scott Snyder reviewing some of Scott Snyder's comics with you hopefully later on this week Jace and uh, eventually we'll, we'll do that unboxing with all those boxes you got behind you there oh man I I can't wait to get them not not necessarily get at what's inside them I I mean that is a consideration but mostly just to get them off my floor and put away (laughs) (laughs) so uh, anyway that's going to do it for this episode everybody don't forget to head over to YouTube if you're listening to us on the audio only and subscribe to Rocky's channel so you don't miss out on any of the other content he's creating you can even join us for these spotlights over there so you can see our smiling faces and uh, the books and the artwork as we're talking about them so it's comic space boom exclamation point on YouTube like, subscribe, comment, ring the notification bell, all that stuff that you guys are familiar with. Uh, conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and you want to listen to some other comic source content, whether it's new content that's coming out or the thousands of uh, previous episodes that are in the library, just go to wherever you get your podcast and do a search for the comic source and you'll find us. So again, we appreciate the support and for having you join us as always. And we'll talk to you next time. Catch you guys later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.